Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald face truth. I got a note from Dave Pash last night. He said, hey, you got to check out my podcast. Damian Lillard says he's going to be a forever guy in Portland. Cool. I checked it out, and look, part of me wants to give Damian Lillard some credit because he's a different cat when it comes to NBA stars and big markets and chasing championships and you know the super teams of today's era or at least the last decade or so that we have watched assemble themselves he's he doesn't appear to be interested in joining somebody else's team but I also kind of didn't agree with everything that he said in the podcast does he feel like he could be a forever guy in Portland. Lillard says, you know, he's going to do what's best for himself. He could see that. I'll play a clip of that coming up. But I I also wanted to be like, well, wait a minute. Maybe Portland doesn't want you as a forever guy. Is that blasphemy? Like there just becomes a point with Damian Lillard, if, if it's not going to work for the Blazers, that you're literally prolonging the inevitable. The rebuild that should have happened a year ago, two years ago, didn't get to happen, because, in part because the Blazers organization was hanging on to Damian Lillard. I want to play this cut, and then I want your reaction to it. We're going to talk a ton of college football on today's show. Brent Viggan, the football coach at Montana State, will be joining us. Uh, Jonathan Smith, the coach at Oregon State, will be joining us. They are playing each other in a game that is now sold out at Providence Park. Uh, we'll talk about Oregon State and their season, and the stepping stone game that this Montana State game is. We'll also visit with Kevin Reynolds in Salt Lake City. He covers BYU for the Salt Lake Tribune. We'll talk about Oregon and BYU. Is it possible BYU, coming off a very emotional game against Baylor, uh, you know, a game that meant a lot to them as they go uh, into the Big 12 Conference next season, is it possible BYU will fall into a trap game against Oregon? I know it's the unthinkable. Oregon becoming a trap game, but I think it is possible, and I'll ask Kevin Reynolds, the beat reporter who covers the team, if he feels like BYU might be set up for Saturday's game at Autzen Stadium. But first, Damian Lillard on Dave Pash's podcast. He interviewed Lillard on a variety of topics, uh, how he's feeling physical, where are the Blazers going, among other things, uh, you know, how about uh, how about uh, Derek Carr calling out Damian Lillard, Damian Lillard before throwing a bomb. Uh, but here's what Lillard said when they turned the topic of discussion towards the NBA All-Star being in Portland as a forever guy. Do you still see yourself spending your whole career in Portland? I do. I do. You know, I've, I've had my people saying, man, you got to get out of there. You got to do this. You got to do that. But I'm a... I'm the type of person that uh, I'm never going to be marching to the beat of nobody else's drum. 
I'm going to always do, you know, what I feel like is in my best interest and that I really feel in my heart. And I think a lot of people, and I've said this on many different occasions, people, they call it, you know, he's being loyal and loyalty this and loyalty that. And I'm like, I'm naturally a loyal person, but I do have a, a level of loyalty to the organization. But the, this loyalty that they're talking about is ultimately to who I am as a person. I'm being loyal to who I am, you know, and not getting beside myself because I'm somebody that, you know, I, I believe what I believe. I think I can get it done. Now, everybody else might say there's no way the Blazers will ever win. You know, they need to do this, they need to do that. But that's just that's just not how I feel about the situation. You know, um, I feel like we'll have a chance to win. You know, I feel like that moment is going to come. You know, I feel like that opportunity is going to come. And, uh, you know, that's that. As long as I feel that our, our organization is putting their best foot forward and we on the same page about doing everything that we can do to win, then I'm willing to go out, you know, I'm willing to go out swinging. But, you know, it's a lot of guys that have, you know, received that same criticism and that same, you should do this, you should do that. And there's been many that have done it, and sometimes they didn't win at all. And sometimes they, the guys that did win, you know, it didn't change anything. So, you know, I want to win. I want to win in Portland. You know, it means something to me to do it here. Uh, there's a, a some significance to that for me. You know, and I don't say that with the expect, expectation that, you know, they couldn't ever decide one day that, all right, we want to move on. You know, what do you want to do? This is me being loyal to who I am, you know, and how I feel and, and what I want to see happen. So uh, I would love to finish my career here. That's my plan. And that's that, you know, I think, you know, everybody's going to always have their opinions and what they think I should do or, you know, he don't he don't want to win, he don't this, he don't that, but nobody's going to have to walk in my shoes but me. Nobody's going to have to deal with any consequences or anything but me. So I'm a, I'm a always go off of, you know, what I what I truly feel, what I truly think and what I'm willing to stand on and this is this is what I'm willing to stand on. Damian Lillard, Blazers guard, talking with Dave Pash on his podcast. I tweeted out a link to that podcast this morning. We've had Pash on the show, and it's interesting because, it, you know, on, you know, just last night, I I ran into Damian Lillard. I happened to be uh, our youngest daughter takes boxing lessons, and I've talked about this. The six year old she boxes, and it's interesting. She is uh, she is a scrapper. And the boxing gym that she goes to happens to be next to this noodle house. We also love the noodle house. And as we were leaving the boxing gym, a car pulled up, and I recognized who I thought was Lillard's mother who got out of a car. And I said, oh, that's Dame's mom. And then the passenger door opened, and they were across the parking lot, and Damian Lillard was in the car. He got out. They went into the noodle house. I didn't bug him. We didn't talk. I don't even think he saw me. But I, I got to thinking about him, and it's a moment like that where you see him, and he's hanging out with family, and you realize, like, you know, here's a guy who's different. This is not a guy like Chris Paul who asked his way out of New Orleans. This is not Russell Westbrook. This is not James Harden. This is certainly not Kevin Durant. And to some respects, you know, Durant's a better player than Damian Lillard. He's a more, more talented player. But I also am cognizant of the idea that there are a season for all things. And as I was getting into the car, my six-year-old's getting in the back seat. She's talking about boxing. But my mind was drifting to Lillard. And 
I got to say something that I think, you know, is going to divide our audience. But I kind of feel like the Blazers should have traded him about a year ago. I feel like his timeline, while it's good for him to be in Portland, may not fit what's best for the organization. And I feel like they're prolonging the inevitable by sort of hanging on to that era of basketball. He said something in there. He said he's always going to do what's in his best interest. His best interest doesn't always line up with what's best for the Trailblazers, does it? He, always, he also said people talk about loyalty, but it's loyalty to who I am. And I, and I think in some way, I get what he's saying, but in some way the organization's got to be loyal to what it needs to do as well. And part of the problem with Trailblazers, Inc. in the last seven or eight years has been that this is an organization that doesn't appear to have a plan that doesn't appear to know uh, what's in its best interest, that is just prolonging, prolonging, punting decisions down the, down the timeline, promoting an interim GM, hiring a coach that's unproven, uh, you know, uh, draft, always looking to the draft to, to save the organization. But I, I feel like this is a team that should have moved him. They feel like a play-in team at best. A lot of my friends who are diehard Blazer fans, I say, well, you know, what's the upside for the season? And they go, oh, well, they could be a play-in team. Oh, they also could be back in the lottery again with Damian Lillard, and that's not where you want to be with a guy who's making $50 million. So what is right for Lillard might not be right for the Blazers organization, might not be right for the trajectory of the franchise. And what my fear for this Blazers organization is that Jody Allen's going to hold it and she's going to suffocate it, and Damian Lillard's going to play two or three or four more years, and he's going to make $50 million plus a, a season, and... In the end, the Blazers are going to have very little to show for it. They're going to be in the same position they would be in had they just a year ago, year and a half ago, two years ago said, hey, it's not working out. Around uh, about the same timeline where you could see them sort of disassociate from the backcourt of C.J. McCollum, Damian Lillard, like, you know, they insisted it would work, it would work, it would work. A lot of us said, no, I don't think so, I don't see it. And, you know, they finally, uh, you know, decided that they were going in a new direction. This is not personal this isn't me not liking Damian Lillard, not appreciating his game. It's just me looking at the trajectory of the franchise and going, hey, these two things don't match up. You have a player who is ready to win now, and, and frankly, whose best years might just be behind him. I still think he has some good ball left in him, but his best years might be behind him, and that's the right time to move Damian Lillard before he starts to deteriorate, before he becomes a diminished asset, before that contract starts to look bad, you have to move Lillard. And so while I appreciate what he's saying on this podcast, there's part of me that's going, hey, cool for you. I get it. If I'm you or your agent, I'm going, yeah, I want to stay in Portland forever. That's great. You can make more money here than you can make anywhere else. You can be a big fish in a small pond. You can be the guy. It won't be your fault. Everybody's going to love you and appreciate you. You can go into the noodle house and nobody will bother you. But what's right for the Blazers? Probably what's right for the Blazers is turning Damian Lillard into assets and draft picks in a future. Now, that's not going to be in Lillard's best interest, but you better be sure that's probably that's what the Blazers need to do. It's a painful decision, and I don't think they're equipped to make it. And I think that's why they have punted and punted and punted and deferred and called timeout and said, you know, we're promoting the GM. Oh, we're going to the trade deadline. Oh, we're adding these pieces. Oh, we're not in a rebuild. We're in a reload. Like, we all know what we're seeing. They're just prolonging and putting a Band-Aid on the issue. And Jody Allen is, you know, insisting 
She's committed to this organization, but we all know better. 503-417-7575. Damian Lillard says he could see himself in Portland for his career. I liked what he said. I also liked the reality or the sobering part where he said, hey, there may be a day that comes where they say, you know, we're moving in another direction. And that's kind of where I think the Blazers were about a year ago at the trade deadline. 503-417-7575. I want your reaction to that. Do you want Lillard to be a forever guy? Or do you want an organization that can pivot and carve a future in the way that the Utah Jazz under Danny Ainge are doing, in the way that other championship-caliber teams have done five or seven years before they really start to win? I want your reaction to that. Great show today. we got a couple of coaches on. Montana State's football coach will be with us. Jonathan Smith at Oregon State will be with us. We'll talk Oregon-BYU and why there are tickets still available. All that's still ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Damian Lillard says uh, he is loyal to himself, so to speak. Man, you got to get out of there. You got to do this. You got to do that. But I'm a, I'm the type of person that uh, I'm never going to be marching to the beat of nobody else's drum. I'm going to always do, you know, what I feel like is in my best interest and that I really feel in my heart. I respect that to some extent, but I also say, hey, what about the team's best interest? 503-417-7575. What, should, what is in the best interest of the Trailblazers organization? D is in Portland's going to lead us off. I can't wait to hear what Steven has to say and Sean as well. D, what do you got? John Gazzara, how are you doing today, man? Doing well. Hey, man. Uh, after listening to that clip, it's a real shame because you can you can hear in, in his voice how badly he just wants to win a championship here. But here's the big elephant in the room. The front office, man. Jody Allen, Burt Cole, they're a bunch of dinkuses, man. They have no clue <laughs> what they're doing. And it's been like that for the past three years. Burt Cole, when I, when I hear about him, when I hear everything about him, dude, it's not your team, man. It is Paul Allen. Dude, rest in peace to that guy. But, bro, it's not your team. I want you to sell the damn team because you have no clue what you are doing. You have no clue. Yeah. On top of that, um... You you asked us what's the best for the Blazers. The best is to sell the team. That's the best. Sell it to Phil Knight, and you know that chapter will start again. And that's the only way. You know, it sucks that I have to keep saying this, but, man, Dame, you deserve better, man. But you just never had a chance, man. He, he's been in this league, actually, he's been with us for about, what, like 10 years now? And we couldn't even get him a second freaking all-star, man. You see, every every team has a second one. Lillard never got that chance. And, yeah, I'm not saying we were going to win it, but, man, for not even giving him a chance, man, it's, it's BS, man. And I'm telling you, Bert and Jody, please tell the team because us Blazer fans, not just me, but a lot of others, we don't want you no more, man. There's yeah. a shelf life. Yeah, appreciate that. Uh, Look, Damian Lillard is the 10th highest paid player in the NBA. 
Um, he is the fifth highest paid guard in the league. He uh, will make uh, in in the subsequent years of his contract uh, 42, 45, 48, 58, and a projected player option of 63 million in 2026-2027. Clearly in his best interest uh, to have the Supermax contract. He stayed with the Blazers. He had more money available to him. He will make more money because of it. Um, I hear that laced in and around. This has been very good for Damian Lillard financially. But him staying in Portland beyond about another year, maybe a season and a half, two at the most, I think it's he becomes a diminishing apps, asset in 2024, 2025, and beyond. And and that's when I kind of look at the Blazers and I'm going, what are you doing? What is your timeline? What is your plan? Why is he here? Is he part of what you're doing now or part of what you were doing yesterday? I don't know. I don't get it. 503-417-7575. Steven, go. Yeah, I agree with everything you say. And I do think it's refreshing to hear Damian Lillard say that. And the fact that people have called him loyal and he – it's not that he took it personally that people are calling him loyal and that he's doing it just to do it, but like he's doing it because that's just the way he is, right? So it's not because he's in Portland. If he was in you know, Minnesota, he'd be in Minnesota. He'd be loyal there. So it's more about him um, just being that type of person. And you're right. You know, why would he not be loyal to the Portland Trailblazers? At the end of his contract, it'll be about $450 million that he's gotten from the franchise. And so I'm... It's a tough spot because he is very good and very important because the fans love him and he's great in the community and all that sort of stuff. But on the court, how close are they to a championship? And the answer is they're not close. So you don't want to wait. You know, It's kind of like Bill Belichick, how he would trade guys a year earlier rather than a year late. I don't want to be stuck in that position where you're a year late with Damian Lillard and you can't get as much back for him that you can because you're not going to win a championship with this roster around him. You're just not. Best case scenario Blazers outperform expectations, make a, make the play-in as like the seven seed, make the actual playoffs, and then have to re-sign Jeremy Grant to a huge contract that overpays him, and you're stuck in the same situation where you don't have an all-star next to Damian Lillard. So, for me, I'm with I'm with you. I you at least have to explore the option of trading him and getting back assets while he still has so much value on the table. Coming off injury, he says he's 100. percent I love I would I love to believe him. There's no reason not to believe him on that one. So. Explore the option. Don't necessarily have to trade him, but you don't want to be one year too late and not be able to get anything back in return for him so you can't build into the future. I also think, you know, you know, there's a timing element to this. And I'm, I, I get, like, at the last trade deadline, it would have been complicated because of the injury to try to move him. But it was like a year ago where I kind of felt, and I started talking about, like, is this the right time for Lillard? And now I'm looking back going, you know, Injury aside, I think it was. You know, I know that, you know, he is under contract. I know that he's got a player option that is coming down the pipeline here. He's got, you know, the ability to have really five seasons here in Portland. But Stephen and Sean, I, I kind of feel like he's got maybe two good ones in him. And then beyond that, I'm, I, I, I don't know. Like, you know, if he surprises us all and he comes back and plays three great seasons you know, credit to him, tip of the cap, but we know that he's aging. We know that the timeline of this team with Anthony Simons and, you know, what they are with Yusuf Nurkic, and you mentioned Grant, they got a grant for one season, like, you know, that that's a problem. But I'm looking at this roster and I'm going, okay, what is the upside for this roster? Are they a play-in team? Like, that is that winning for the Blazers? 
Yeah, and you mentioned it uh, earlier in this segment, saying you know they should have traded him one year ago because Damian Lillard's stock isn't that high right now. He's coming off of that abdominal surgery. We haven't seen him play basketball in a while, and even if he comes out balls to the wall this year, plays really good basketball, his stock still isn't as high as it used to be. Maybe two years ago, maybe a year ago, because he's getting older. You mentioned it. He's he's in his thirties now, so I, I do think the Blazers are in a pretty precarious spot. Even if they do trade Damian. Damian Lillard get some value. I just, you know, I don't really know what this team is. They're kind of stuck in the middle right now because even if they did trade Dame and, uh, you know, they had this team without Damian Lillard, they're still not one of the worst teams in the league, in my opinion. They have guys like Jeremy Grant, Yusuf Nurkic, so it's not like they're going full Utah, full Oklahoma City um, if they were to trade Dame. So I think they're just kind of stuck in the middle for the next couple of years, unfortunately. Yeah, I've, talk- talk- yeah, I've talked to a lot of Blazer fans, and they want to compare Dame to a Chris Paul, where Chris Paul can still be effective at the age he's at, but that's not Damian Lillard's game. Damian Lillard, his game is based all off explosion. If you watch mm-hmm. him play, it's the explosion of the hoop. It's that first step. Chris Paul isn't doing that. Chris Paul is kind of you know changing paces, changing speeds. Dame is explosive, getting that step back jumper off. That's going to be tougher as you get older. Yeah. Now, Dame is a freak and is awesome and works out and you know is in great shape. So he's going to be able to do it sometimes. But at the age of 35, 36, when he's making 58, 63, $64 million dollars, is he going to be that guy that gets you 25 a night while shooting a good percentage because that explosiveness is going to wear off at some point? So that is the one thing I worry about, John, is if you wait too long, what what actually is Damian Lillard? Is he an all-star? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah, and you're running that risk now, and that's the thing. Like, you could bet, you could make that bet if you're a Blazer fan. Hey, you, I think he's going to have blossom like Chris Paul and reinvent himself. That's cool, but that is a rare circumstance, and – you know, I, I think Chris Paul is making players around him better right now, maybe at a, different than any point of his career. Damian Lillard, I, you know, apologies to C.J. McCollum and other guys that have been alongside Damian Lillard. I don't necessarily think Lillard made guys around him better because Lillard needs the ball. And I don't know if he's, you know, maybe in two and three seasons he becomes a great distributor and all of a sudden his assists go up and we all go, okay, yeah, he, he pivoted. But I, I think it's you're asking a lot of him. And you're asking a lot, and you're risking a lot by hanging on to him. All right, coming up, uh, we are going to pivot to some football. We have uh, the great football coach at Montana State coming up. Brent Viggan is going to be joining us. Montana State traveling to Portland for a big football game. It'll be Oregon State, Montana State. They will be playing on Saturday night. It is a sold-out game at Providence Park. Portland State's not happy about it. I wrote about it today. But we'll talk to Brent Viggan, the Montana State football coach, now, what he expects from Oregon State, this is a Montana State program that has upset some Pac-12 teams over the years. What does he see on film? And what can we expect to see as football returns to Providence Park on Saturday night? Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Montana State, Big Sky Conference, playing a game at Providence Park Saturday night. They will play Oregon State. Joining us now to talk about it, Brent Viggan, head coach, Montana State. How are you, Coach? How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Um, look, uh, you're, you're getting a chance to uh, to play Oregon State at Providence Park. I mean, over the years, I know 
Montana State has played some games there, uh, usually against Portland State, but it'll be fun. It's a sold-out game. I think a lot of people in Portland are excited to see games there. But how are you guys feeling about it? No, we're excited. Uh, you know, opportunity to play, I think, a very good Pac-12 opponent, uh, first of all. But then, uh, yeah, I get to play in Portland uh, on a, a neutral site to some degree. Um, we get a lot of players, you know, from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so it's a, it's a game that will be relatively close to home for a lot of our guys. Um, and it should be a lot of energy, uh, you know, in the in the crowd that night. Um, so we're looking forward to it in every which way. What do you see on film when you watch Oregon State's film? A good team. Uh, you know, a team that has really um, made significant progress in the, in the last years since Coach Smith has been there to the point where, you know, you watch them and, and there's not a lot of weaknesses to them. They're really, they're really solid, um, if not uh, – you know, really good at a lot of places. Um, you know, I, I, I think offensively they have a they have a real identity. Um, you know, they can run it and throw it, and they're physical. Um, quarterback's gonna make uh, make plays, um, and, and he doesn't have to rely on you know just uh, one or two guys. I think they got plenty of guys he can spread it around to on defense. Um, you know, physical up front, um, a lot to handle. You know, and then you include their linebackers in that. It's really really good front seven. And then in the secondary, I floated with, with guys that, you know, I think have gotten accolades for, for good reason. So, um, yeah, they've, you know, I, and I probably hadn't seen them on film a lot the last couple of years. I was at Wyoming. So we would get crossover film going back maybe three, four years ago. And I think they look a lot different than they did then. We're talking to Brent Viggan, who's the head coach at Montana state uh, last year. You guys got to the championship game, uh, played North Dakota State. It was a fantastic season, uh, a lot of magic there. How, how different are you guys last year to this year personnel-wise? Well, we're different. Uh, we, we had you know four guys off of last year's team that uh, are currently on NFL rosters, so we certainly do miss, miss those guys in addition to you know the rest of that senior group. Um, I think we have some, some guys that – maybe played a little bit more of a secondary role that are positioned um, to take a, a, a good leap this year. Um, I think we got some good young players that, you know, are continuing to find their way early in the season. So, you know, I think on the surface, you, you, you look at the guys that we lost and there were, there were some big uh, departures, but I think we have the ability if we can continue to build momentum to, you know, to be a playoff team, um, but that's a long ways off right now. So, you know, we've uh, I think we've gotten better these first two weeks. This will be a, a huge test um, as we finish up non-conference play. Um, but I do like this team. I, I I think we have a lot of the same um, makeup as last year. While we lost some really good individuals, you guys are dangerous. I mean, I I look at this and I go, this this is not like a normal payday game. This is this is a team that uh, is capable of beating. Uh, you know, a, an opponent in a Power Five conference on a given day. I'm also watching expansion and realignment happen. You came from Wyoming, now in the Mountain West. Is Montana State ready for a jump up conference-wise? Is that something that is being bantered about even with boosters and coaches and fans? Well, I don't know if it is necessarily. I do know that you know, our head's not in the sand either. I think you see that there is a um, – there's going to be some movement, um, continued movement at the very top, and probably in particular out west. Um, what does that mean? Where does that trickle down 
it us. I, I do do feel like having coached in the Mountain West and coached at uh, both North Dakota State now uh, Montana State that you know the lines between the top of FCS and the group of five are, are pretty gray. Um, I, I do feel that now. I and I do think you know we have a um, attractive location and institution in in pro athletic program that is not just about football. So I do think there's some reason to believe if you know if there is some kind of shift down the down the road um, that we can be on the right side of that. But exactly what that means, I don't know. I think we gotta we gotta continue to put all our chips in where we're at, um, and that's at the FCS level right now, and do the very best we can. Um, but uh, you know, keep pushing our programs forward, and, and as the landscape of college athletics changes, just uh, you know, position ourselves the best we can be to, um, to be on the right side of those decisions. The the fan support that you get at Montana State is fantastic. You know, I was just looking at your attendance from last season, and of course, you guys were really good. But that that community, that fan base, the support you have, that that community travels. Will you get some Montana State fans at Providence Park on Saturday? I think without question. You know, I saw it today where it sold out. So if that's the 26 range, I, I can't say how many, but I think we'll have a pretty vocal crew. Um, I know when we played out there last year against Portland State, uh, we had a good crowd for that game. Um, and, and like you mentioned, we do travel well. Um, so, yeah, whatever that number is going to be, I'm not quite sure, but I know we'll have a presence Um just depending on maybe how eager our fans were to get those tickets. Uh, so we look forward to it, uh, you know, playing a game, I guess, on the road, but having uh, Oregon State have to travel up the road, too, it does it does make it a little bit, uh, I suppose, more neutral, even though it is in their home state. Give me an idea. You, you watch the tape. You see Jonathan Smith, you know, lining up to kick the field goal to tie the game, send it into overtime. All of a sudden, there's a timeout. He sends Jack Coletto onto the field. Oregon State's going to win the game. What did you think of that as a coach? Well, I was watching it live um, late Saturday night, and, you know, I think I find myself at the end of whatever game kind of, you know, trying to put yourself in, in coach's shoes and, and the, the sequencing, the back and forth, maybe through that whole fourth quarter um, was something. I mean, it, even as much – you know, Fresno misses a field goal, and should they have kicked that deep field goal, then they go up and you don't score, and they miss the extra point, they go up four, giving Oregon State a, a different way to look at that last drive, and then you get the pass interference, um, what was it, eight seconds left, I believe, at prior to that play, are they going to, you know, how's that going to play out? And then the back and forth between the timeouts, um, you know, ultimately uh, trusted his players, and, you know, they went out and made, made a play. So, and that's a, you know, those plays, um, those can be season changing. I mean, it's one game, but the momentum that can be created uh, and the confidence that can be built um, is something. So we're on the other side of all that, I guess. Uh, so, no, it was a, you know, it was a gutsy decision by Coach Smith, and it, it paid off. And, you know, now we get a chance to, to face that, I, I suppose, that uh, that energy and confidence that was potentially built out of that play. Now, I had a Big Sky scout tell me, hey, this game's going to be like, uh, you know, two teams in a headlock. They, they're going to play field position. They're both going to run a one, run the ball. Um, do you see some similarities in kind of your approach offensively and, and what Oregon State tries to do? 
I think overall, philosophically, um, how they play, I think their offense and their defense and field position and special teams, I think that all matters. Turnover margin matters to them, and it does does to us. I think it might look a little bit different offensively. They get under center much more than we do. Um, probably play with multiple tight ends and fullbacks more than we do, but I think just how to go about it, um, having balance, approach, you know, trying to really uh, – go after balance i think we both really value that um i think stopping the run on on defense and really trying to make uh the opponent one-dimensional is something we're both aiming to do so yeah i think there's there's certainly some similarities with just the overall philosophy and how you go about trying to to win football games so um you know who's more physical who protects the football who's more opportunistic in the red zone i think all those things will be um, things we really need to, to do well uh, to have a have a chance on, on Saturday. We're talking to Montana State's coach. Uh, Brent Viggan is with us. They play Oregon State on Saturday night. Providence Park sold out. Uh, you know, in the Big Sky Conference, in, a, in the division that you guys play, the transfer portal becomes dicey. And I see it all the time. Teams have success. You got guys getting in the portal. How are you keeping guys at Montana State? What are you selling there? Well, I think I think you got to have an experience that they don't want to leave. I think that sounds um, I maybe a little bit hokey, but I think that's where it has to start. They have to be bought into what what you're doing, how they're being treated, um, the bond that they have with their teammates. I, I think all that really matters. Now we're doing everything we can, you know, to take care of our guys too. You know, whether whether that's um, Scholarship wise, I know we, you know, we have a group of uh, supporters that have started a collective. So, you know, we're trying to do things the very best we can. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to hopefully our experience is something that they don't want to, they don't want to depart from. And for the most part, these first two years, we've had, we've had success with that, um, where we haven't had uh, mass departures, but we've had some departures, you know. And I think that's, that's going to be the nature of it. Um, but you got to, you know, treat them well, and, and hopefully they, you know, they just fall in love with the place and you know, don't even consider leaving, I guess, is the, is the best approach that we have, I, I believe. Is it, is it, I guess, you know, all coaches at all levels, they simultaneously will say things like, you know, it's great for the kids, but then also they're watching their backup quarterbacks, right? And they're going, hey, we, we got to be careful. That guy's going to jump in the portal and we're going to lose depth. Um, how should that be handled? Like, do you, if the NCAA or Congress came to you and said, "Coach, give us some uh, input here with the portal and what should be available to kids," what kind of guardrails would you put on it? Well, I think the, you know, they, they've gotten a little wiser. I think the timing of when you can go is, has been helpful or will be helpful. I think, but I, I say that. I mean, technically, they can't go until. December, but you see already guys leaving their institutions this year, even though they're technically not in the, the transfer portal. So I don't know. I think I think where we're at, it's, it's probably not going to go backwards. I think leaving it at one opportunity to transfer, I think, is pretty important. The thought of having multiple transfers, I don't know what that does, what kind of message that sends to um, to anyone, I guess, as far as being – you know, if you don't like it, if you don't like your lot, you give up. Um, I think there is something to just sticking with it and playing it out. Um, you know, so if they get their one-time transfer and if they're in position to graduate or graduate down the road and they can become a graduate transfer, I do think that's okay. Um, 
you know, I, I just think each one of us coaches at uh, every program across the country probably has its own view and has to treat it in its own way relative to their institution. Um, you know, you start getting into everybody's opinion, and I don't, I don't think you can rest on anything. So I think we're we're at least getting some guardrails, and I, I do think the the one time transfer. I hope it I hope it stays at that. That's probably be, that's probably my biggest thing as we move forward. Um, Ending that, I think, would be that would be problematic for sure. Portland State's got an issue. I know this is you know a little outside of school for an interview like this, but you know that's their home stadium, or it used to be their home stadium. Well, you will play on Saturday night. They're now out in Hillsboro. They'd love to get back downtown. Um, as a Big Sky member, with the health of the Big Sky Conference in as part of this discussion, you know how important is it for? a place like Portland State, Sacramento State, Weber State, to have a stadium that is in proximity to their campus? Well, I think it's really important. You know, obviously, we, we played out in Hillsborough last year, and, and there wasn't uh, the same feel that you get playing here on campus. I know that. Um, you know, that, that student uh, interaction fan involvement that, that we have, I don't think that's possible where they're located and I haven't been to every venue in the conference to this point, but been, you know, over my, my time as a coach, been in a lot of them and, and, you know, having the on campus uh, or close to campus proximity, I think is pretty important. Um, I'd imagine coach Barham, you know, would really want to get back to the playing at Providence uh, park. And, um, you know, I, I guess I would be all for that. It'll be, it'll be great for us to get a chance to experience it, uh, on Saturday, and I'm sure I'll I'll recognize that that'd be a better opportunity for them in our conference than you know them having to play all the way out in Hillsborough. You you know your time at Wyoming, you guys got to throw the ball a little bit, and and you know you saw some great players. Uh, you 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 what did you learn there? I guess on Craig Bowles' staff, what did you pick up there that maybe you couldn't get anywhere else? And certainly, you look at a guy like Josh Allen. What was that like? Well, I think first of all, working with Josh was, um, you know, was a great experience for me. Um, I think, I think as we moved moved through our time, both at North Dakota State and Wyoming, I was with Coach Bowl at both places for 18 years. I, I think we 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 sorted out what we were looking for in quarterbacks, um, and, and you know, fortunately, we we hit on a guy like Josh who who was, um, you know, far from refined, and and you know, he did a lot for for the, the school at Wyoming for the football program and uh, will continue to and, and um, you know really proud of, of having a chance to be part of his journey um, you know I think I think a bigger picture for me um, coaching in the Mountain West getting a appreciation for um, a different region of the country and uh, a region that shares the, a very similar footprint to the big sky the pac 12 uh, recruiting, um, is a big part of what what I learned about because you know prior to that I've been at North Dakota State we were primarily you know Midwest and 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 South I guess um, but uh, you know a lot of good football played throughout uh, the West Coast and um, you know I think the, there's a lot of ties between you know uh, the the Big Sky and the Mountain West and the Pac-12 uh, you know you look at a coach like Coach Smith who's who's coached in, in each one of the conferences he's coached uh, um, you know, I, I'm sure he's got an appreciation for this, the differences and the similarities. And, and now, having coached in you know 
obviously two of those three leagues, I, I feel I'm, I'm getting more, uh, more a feel for that, I guess. So, no, the, the experience for me at Wyoming um, on, the, on the football side uh, was a great learning experience. And then, you know, the appreciation of living out west. And, um, you know, I couldn't be happier. My family couldn't be more happy to be in Bozeman right now. Coach, I wish you the best Saturday. I appreciate you giving us some of your time, and, and good luck to you down the road. All right, appreciate it. Go Cats. All right, there's Brent Viggen. He is the football coach at Montana State. Previously, he was the quarterback's coach and offensive coordinator at Wyoming, where he encountered Josh Allen. Good stuff from him. I thought it was really interesting, too, when he talked a little bit about, you know, their head's not buried in the sand. As, as a member of the Big Sky Conference, Montana State, I think, would be among the candidates if the Mountain West Conference loses a San Diego State, loses a Boise State, or a Fresno State, I think you could expect somebody like Montana State to fill that void. And and uh, what that would mean for the rest of the Big Sky Conference, uh, we all know. Like, uh, it would be a big blow to lose a tentpole program like that. Montana State, Oregon State, Saturday night, Providence Park. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I was looking at some college football coaches who are on the hot seat or maybe their seat's getting warm today. And uh, not that the seat's getting warm actually today, but their seats are getting warm, period, end stop. Uh, One of the guys in the Pac-12 conference, I think, I think the only two coaches in the Pac-12 Conference who could be in trouble this season are Arizona State's Herm Edwards, in part because of all the off-field stuff and the NCAA probe. And the other guy is Colorado's Carl Durrell. Carl Durrell is making $3.6 million, highest-paid coach in Colorado program history. He's 0-2. He's 4-12 in his last 16. I looked at his contract today. Uh, trying to figure out, like, you know, how patient can Rick George, the athletic director at Colorado, be with Carl Durrell? Because I, I think Colorado is a sleeping giant. It, you know, I did a radio interview yesterday in, in Seattle, KJR in Seattle, and we were talking about Washington. And there's some real similarities between the donor base of Colorado, the tradition and history at Colorado, the um, success that Colorado has had. There's some real correlation between Colorado and Washington. Um, So I think the fans in Colorado are really frustrated right now. But Carl Durrell's contract protects him a little bit. I looked at it today. If they terminate him before December 31st of this year, they'll owe him $11.4 million in a buyout. Uh, If they do it after that date, let's say they wait one more day, let's just say January 1st, it drops to $7.4 million. It's not unthinkable, but if they wait one more year, it drops to $4 million. And I got to thinking about Scott Frost because we saw the report about Scott Frost and his buyout, and he's getting $15 million. And had Nebraska waited, like, till October 1st, it would have dropped in half to seven point five. But, you know... Trev Alberts, the athletic director at Nebraska, said he couldn't wait a day longer, a minute longer. He said he owed it to the players to give him a different voice and a different vision. $7.5 million, guys? Could, like, they couldn't wait a couple of weeks? Um, Carl Durrell doesn't quite have 
the same protection that Frost has, and he's got a worse record. I, I kind of think Colorado will stick with him at least until January 1, and then beyond that, probably stick with him for another year, another season. But beyond that, I don't think Carl Durrell gets any more time unless he turns it around. I agree with you. Um, you know, it's a tough spot that he's in. Like, they're not expected to do much, and it was just, you know, when Mel Tucker left, they needed a replacement really quickly, and they got Carl Durrell. So it's kind of a no-win situation that he's in. And at this point, like, if you fire him, how much are you really expecting out of Colorado to be, yeah. right? Like, are they going to get to six wins if you fire him? Like, if you have a, if you have the best coach, if you have Nick Saban, are they getting to six or seven wins? Maybe, probably, but you're not going to get that level of coach. So you might as well just ride it out until it's a little cheaper. Yeah, yep. the thing with Carl Durrell, you know, I compare him to Jed Fish often at Arizona because both programs have been completely rebuilding and both coaches got hired around the similar time. Jed Fish is bringing in transfers. He's recruiting at a high level. He's keeping the guys that are good on his team around. It's the complete opposite at Colorado. They lost a lot of their best players from last year. doesn't seem like they're recruiting very well. doesn't seem like they're adding anyone. And their team is just at rock bottom to the point where they're losing by multiple scores to Air Force. So, I, yeah, I think Carl Durrell, man, it's, uh, I think he's in, he's in deep, deep trouble. I think he's in trouble as well, but I think they're going to wait. I also kind of wonder, like, you think about Nebraska and Colorado almost in the same breath back in the day in the Big 12 Conference. Like, they were uh, teams that played neck and neck, and now you have such a fall from grace for both of those programs. Really interesting to do that. We don't need to play the benchmark here, but our big splash today is coming out of the NBA. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, he told reporters today that he doesn't have the right to take the Phoenix Suns away from Robert Sarver, who has been... Uh, punished for making racist and misogynist remarks. Um, Silver said this is not the same as Donald Sterling. He, uh, Sarver got a $10 million fine and a one-year suspension. Um, but Adam Silver telling reporters that, uh, look, uh, we didn't have the right to take the team away from Sarver. We'll talk about it coming up. Up next, uh, we will go to BYU territory. Oregon fans, pay attention. Stick around. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I love doing this radio show. Do you love your job? I love my job. I love hosting this radio show, and I appreciate that you're here for it. Oregon State, Montana State, uh, we've talked some about that game already on today's show. That game is officially a sellout. You heard from Montana State's football coach uh, in hour number one. Uh, coming up in hour three, Jonathan Smith will be with us, Oregon State's football coach. Be here for that. But that game's a sellout. What is not a sellout yet is the Oregon-BYU game. Tickets are still available. Uh, Oregon has a number of home games that have tickets still available. We can get into why that is uh, later in the show and 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 talk about that a little bit. But... Uh, I want to talk about BYU. Uh, I want to make a deep dive on BYU football. And there's nobody better to talk about BYU football than the guy who covers it better than anybody else. Kevin Reynolds of the Salt Lake Tribune joining us. He is on the BYU beat. And I have to know, Kevin, as you join us here, I have to know what that beat is like and what that fan base is like to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of funny that you bring that up. It really depends on the day over here. Some days... Uh, it, the one way I would describe it is passionate, but you know, this is, this is a bunch that, 
they're very they're very interested in how they're going to fit into the Big 12 landscape, and I, I think. Uh, and, and depending on what you write, depending on the day it is, uh, the, the reactions can go very differently to, to what I'm writing. <laughs> and you get to, you probably get the, the fan base is nationwide, right? And, and in some cases it's global. I mean, because, you know, when we talk about Oregon or Oregon State, we're talking regional fan base. Most of the fans rooted in the Pacific Northwest. But BYU fans, of course, you get a whole bunch in Salt Lake City and in the state of Utah, but you probably get BYU fans from all over the country. Yeah, no, every day I get emails almost every day from people who are based in Salt Lake, but also based in, you know, Texas and Oklahoma, and, you know, you name it, kind of across the, the country um, for the most part is where I get emails from. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic to have people, you know, I work at Salt Lake Tribune, so to have people reading your stuff from all over the country is, is an interesting dynamic for sure. Give us an idea. Week one, uh, put 50 points on South Florida. Big win in week two over Baylor. Uh, two ranked teams. BYU gets that one. I think BYU is making a case uh, to be one of the best teams uh, in the western part of the United States, if not the best. But what happened? What was the difference between week one, and week two? What kind of growth did you see? Yeah, I, I, let's start with week one. Really, you see the fifty points that BYU's offense put up. And to be honest with you, I, I left that game and and we wrote about it. It, it kind of felt a little hollow, um, to be honest with you, because. The way they got those points, you have the first play of the game, they open up on a 75-yard end around uh, on a jet sweep type of play, and how how much does that really translate to good teams and, and better teams like Baylor and Oregon's of the world? And I don't really know if it did. And, and then you also had a lot of defensive plays that, that BYU made in that first game. They had a, they had a pick six. And so you really looked at those 50 points, and, and you kind of wondered, how is this actually going to translate um, and then the other big thing was defensively. Um, I think the defense played well for BYU in the first week of the season. But, again, it was a South Florida team that, you know, isn't probably going to be very good this year, hasn't been good last year in the last couple of years. So you, you really had a lot of question marks going into that second week of the season. And for me, um, my main takeaways out of Baylor was that the defense uh, made a significant jump from week one to week two and really from last year to this year. Um, because, remember, BYU played Baylor in 2021. And they gave up 303 yards of rushing offense. Uh, it wasn't a particularly close game. And I think over the offseason, we, we heard a lot from BYU's defensive coordinator, Eliza Tuiaki, about how he really wasn't making a lot of schematic adjustments, which was a little surprising. Um, but the, the the defense played really well. I think that's probably the biggest jump that was made. Um, and as far as offensively goes, I think it's a little bit hard to judge right now where this offense is, mainly because BYU isn't playing with its top two receivers. Um, and we don't really know the status of those uh, Puka Nakula and Gunnar Romney going into Oregon as well. So I, I think the defense is where you saw the biggest jump from week one to week two um, on BYU's team, but also the offense, we'll, we'll see. I think it really goes as Jaron Hall does, and then we'll see about the, the health of its two best players, for uh, two best offensive weapons after him. You mentioned Tuyaka, the defensive coordinator. He was formerly at Oregon State as a linebackers coach. Kalani Sataki was the D coordinator under Gary Anderson. They're now at BYU. How has that coaching staff gelled in your mind? And, 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 you know, these are guys that have coached together for a long time. Yeah, I mean, look at last year to this year. BYU didn't have any coaching turnover at all on its staff uh, from the coordinators and the assistants, which is uh, quite rare, obviously, in college football. And I think the, one of the things that, that sticks out to me, I haven't been covering this program for a long time, but just getting to know everybody in the first nine months and interviewing people is that, uh, Kalani Sataki puts a lot of trust into his coordinators and, and lets them kind of do their thing. Uh, he doesn't really, and he's 
slow to kind of make changes. I think a lot of people have been talking about uh, Chuiaki specifically about this defense and how it needs to make a jump, particularly not just for this year, but into the Big 12. Like the defense kind of has been, you know, the depth needs to be better. And a lot of people have been questioning that. But Kalani Shataki's kind of stuck by him. So this coaching staff, I think the hallmark for BYU is just the continuity that it brings um, going into Oregon, going into the to the Big 12, and they've been able to keep a lot of coordinators. And uh, I think that's the hallmark of, of this coaching staff right now. BYU headed into the Big 12. Uh, you know, obviously we're all looking at how they can compete. They beat Baylor. What did that say about BYU and their ability to compete in the Big 12? You know, honestly, I go back and forth on this. You know, on initial, uh, on initial thought, I think it makes a huge statement for BYU uh, in terms of their competitiveness in the Big 12. Baylor and Kalani Sataki kind of embraced it last week. He said Baylor is the, the standard of the Big 12, obviously the, the, the champions of that conference last year. Um, and, and I think you also saw that Baylor and BYU have quite a few similarities in terms of the, the profiles of their institution, the religious nature of both, both schools, and just kind of the way they want to bring up their program um, in the Big 12. And I think BYU beating Baylor – um, and, and kind of showing a lot of growth from 2021 to 2022 makes a huge statement about what this team can do in the Big 12. You know, I, I tend to still think that BYU is going to struggle um, at least in the first couple years of, of being in the conference just because of the jump, uh, the natural jump that you have, but also that a lot of team, players on this team and a lot of contributors are going to be graduating or going to be leaving the program after this year, so it's going to be a much different team going into 2023 for BYU but I think beating Baylor is a huge statement, and I definitely think uh, it changes the trajectory of this season. Um, but I think it gives a lot of confidence to BYU, uh, to be honest with you, that they can compete at this level eventually. Um, and, and kind of, we'll see how fast that can happen. But I think eventually that that's, I think the Baylor win says a lot, especially on the defensive side, because I think that's the biggest thing. I think people thought BYU can compete offensively in the Big 12 um, in a couple of years, but I think defensively was the biggest question mark. And the way they performed, I thought that was a, a, a good barometer for how that's going to be five, ten years down the line. Kevin Reynolds with us, covers BYU for the Salt Lake Tribune, does a hell of a job, is a good follow on Twitter as well. Kevin Reynolds, 30 on Twitter. Uh, Kevin, the offensive side of the ball for BYU didn't run the ball really well against Baylor, but that may have had something to do with Baylor. Give us a player or two to keep an eye on. Keys for the game offensively for BYU. Yeah, I think the first one you're going to have to look out for uh, is Chase Roberts. I think he's going to have to play a huge role in this game for BYU. He's a true, uh, he's a, sorry, redshirt freshman. Um, hasn't he played in his second career college game uh, in against Baylor? He had 122 yards on eight carry uh, on eight catches. Also had 15 targets, and I think the targets is what's interesting to me. I think there was a huge concern. We mentioned Gunnar Romney and Puka Nakua not really being able to play. Um, and Gunnar Romney, we haven't seen really practice in over a month now or about a month now. So I, I think the trust level, uh, we, we, were, we were interested to see just as, you know, observers and people who cover this team of who's Jaron Hall going to throw to at this point. And I think Chase Roberts is the answer to that, um, judging by last week and how much he was involved in the offense. So I think that's the first person you've got to look out for as key contributors you can also talk about Jaron Hall, and I think everybody, that goes without saying, but the second guy I'll list is probably Chris Brooks. And, and you mentioned BYU not being able to run the ball particularly well. I think that's a huge concern going into this game because BYU's offensive line was the strong suit of this team and, and really the best unit on this team going into 2022 and, and them not being able to really compete against Baylor, even if it is a very good defensive line. 
was a little bit concerning because they never really had wins. The largest run of the game for Chris Brooks was seven yards. For Lapini Catoa, it was six yards. So it, there just weren't a lot of holes there. So I think this week, another guy that BYU, if they're going to win this game, I think Chris Brooks is another guy to look out for, BYU starting running back. Uh, can he have over 31 yards um, of, of rushing? Aaron Rodgers talked about this, him in particular saying he wants him to be a guy that, that carries the ball 20 times. I think that's when he thinks the offense is at, at its most dynamic. He had 13 carries in, in week two, and the defense was on the field quite a bit because of it. So I think Chris Brooks and, and Chase Roberts are the two people I would look out for uh, come Saturday on the offensive side of the ball. You know, going to Oregon and, and playing against the Ducks, it used to mean a lot to BYU. I can remember over the years, like, BYU got up for those games. Even if it was a bowl game, BYU was excited to be in that bowl game, and I saw BYU beat Oregon badly in a Vegas Bowl years and years ago. But does it still hold that draw for the BYU fan base and for the teams, or are they on to different things now that they're headed into the Big 12? You know, that's kind of an interesting question. I think overall it definitely can be made the, the debate of, like, how much does this, this game mean to the program overall? I'm not really sure. But at the same time, I think this game in particular, like, isolated in of itself, is a massive game for BYU. And I think they recognize that. I mean, this is a top 25 matchup. This is um, also BYU, like, like, well, let's be honest with this. Like, if they, they've set out their goal of saying, okay, we want to make the New Year's Six, they want to they want to be ranked inside the top ten. Um, and that's the goal that they set out. And in order to do that, it's going to require close to perfection. Um, and it's also going to require going on the road at a team like Oregon and boosting your resume. And I think after Baylor, uh, we, we wrote about it and saying, are the expectations to this season kind of starting to be rewritten? And yes, to a certain degree, that's true, but it only works if BYU goes in and beats a team like Oregon. So I think this is a massive game. The biggest con- the concern, I think, from BYU's side is just how close this game was on the heels of, of Baylor. Um, you know, a very emotional game and a very emotional win and a very physical game. So the health and, and just how close these two games are, I think, is a huge huge storyline going into it for BYU. But I definitely would say this means a lot to this program. It means a lot to this team in particular, um, just given this season. Our listeners are, are tuned in to what has uh, happened with the Duke volleyball accusations and the back and forth in South Carolina backing out of that home-and-home home basketball series. How much has that clouded the narrative for you and, and for BYU in general this season as, as people sort of navigate that incident? I mean, I think, obviously, I've spent a ton of time on that story since uh, August 26th when it happened. And so, so for me, it's taken a lot of time. And I think for a lot of BYU fans, it's taken a lot of time. As far as clouding the football season, I'm not, I'm not really sure if that's happened. But at the same time, though, you know, it is, I've said it multiple times, like it is the biggest story um, at BYU right now for sure. Um, and it's been the biggest story for the last uh, two-plus weeks. So we've seen, you know, and, and, and it's become a national story. So it's definitely something that, that has been overarching over BYU uh, since it happened and, and still kind of lingers right there right now. How much validity to that thing? And how much now do you look and go, okay, it's a he said, she said, and, you know, help us, like give us the Cliff Notes version. I, I guess I'll kind of start by saying, you know, I, my my you know perspective as as a reporter, you know, like my job is to to cover the story as it is. So, um, and that's what we've been doing. So I think I think the just kind of taking through the Cliff Notes version of what's happened, and because a lot has happened in this story for sure. You know, obviously August 26th, Duke comes in and plays BYU on BYU's campus in in uh, the Field House. 
right next to the to the uh, football practice facility, so it's right on campus. And uh, that day, we didn't really hear much until the next day when um, Rachel Richardson, who was the Duke player, um, who said that she was called repeatedly a racial slur by somebody in BYU student section, uh, that next day uh, a tweet came out from her godmother who who uh, kind of came out with those allegations. And, and since then, the story's kind of evolved, and, and we've been covering it. I think oh, I, I talked to um, Rachel Richardson's father that day as well, and, and, and kind of the story took off from there. And I would say Rachel Richardson's spoken several times since then, once to ESPN, once she, she also gave a statement. And I think immediately after that happened, BYU banned a fan from the, the from the university premises um, indefinitely, and it was the fan that Duke Volleyball had identified as the person who was making uh, saying the racial slurs. And then BYU launched an investigation. So I know this is kind of taking a long time, but you know the timeline—that's kind of how the timeline is. And then it was until uh, just a couple of days ago when BYU, or right before the Baylor game, that Friday right before the Baylor game, BYU closed this investigation and said it did not find evidence of the uh, racial slur being used and they reinstated the fan. So, uh, but right now I think the West Coast Conference has also come out and said that they've reviewed the internal investigation that BYU had. They called it transparent, but they also said that they did not, they did not believe that uh, Rachel Richardson was lying by any stretch of the imagination. She said they, the, from the West Coast Conference, they said uh, their perspective was that it could have happened, that no evidence has come forth right now. And they also said that multiple Duke players uh, reported language from BYU's fan base that did violate the sportsmanship conduct of the West Coast Conference. So, and that kind of brings us to today. So, that's kind of the Cliff Notes version and the the timeline that we've had yeah, so that, far over the last. Two that's weeks. that's messy, man. And I know, like you, you're in this. You know, you're into covering the football, covering the sports and stuff. And up pops this other story. You're doing a great job on it. Kevin Reynolds is with us, Salt Lake Tribune. All right, uh, give us your pick for this game. How do you see Oregon BYU unfolding? I'm a little uncertain about Oregon, just full disclosure over here, Kevin. I mean, we, we kind of still don't know what Dan Lanning in, in Oregon is going to be this season. Yeah, I'll, full, full, full transparency for me. At the beginning of the season, I picked Oregon to win this game. And uh, then I obviously have been watching from afar, from a distance. Obviously, I watched the, uh, the Georgia game that Oregon played and then the game last week. And I'm, I'm really, you know, very different weeks. And I think it's hard for me personally to judge what this Oregon team is uh, just kind of like what you're saying. So I think, honestly, after the Baylor game for BYU, I kind of shifted my tune on what this game can be for BYU. I don't think it's a blowout by any stretch. I think it's a close game. But I, I think if BYU – and it's a big if. It definitely is. Uh, one game doesn't necessarily mean that that is who you are. But if BYU's defense plays the way like it did against Baylor, I, I think BYU can win this game and come out in a, in a close one, maybe 35-31, uh, you know, the, the, the big question mark to me, like you said, is, is who is this Oregon team? I'm not really sure. And I think it's always early in the season. It's always hard to predict these types of games. But I just, for me right now, and uh, just being, maybe it's because I'm around the BYU program and it's recency biased as well coming off of Baylor, but I just think BYU's made a bigger statement at this point of who they are against Tom competition and, uh, and really a lack of answers right now on who Oregon is. So I think BYU can squeak, squeak one out in Oregon, but I don't think it's going to be easy, and and it really depends on who this Oregon team is. Now, you grew up in Jersey. What exit did you grow up in in Jersey? <laughs> yeah, no, I actually grew up in central Jersey, which a lot okay. of people say don't exist. 
So that's uh, that's just my my what I say. Yeah. All right. So you you went to college at SMU. SMU has been mm -hmm. talked about as a possible target for the Pac-12 and expansion. Now, just because yeah. it's in Dallas, but give us an idea. Does SMU belong in the Pac-12? Uh, the, the the statement I always say to that is SMU believes that they belong in the Pac-12, and that's for sure. Um, I'm not really sure. I think. Uh, I think SMU is like kind of a weird spot in their program and, and just the history of their program. I think SMU's tried to make a lot of leaps as, as a football program, but as an athletic department and, and trying to be power five ready. And I, I think sometimes they come up short and they still have a lot of room to grow in that situation. So, um, <laughs> you know, that's a complicated question for me personally, but I, I think SMU certainly believes that, that they do belong in the Pac-12. They also belong, they thought they belonged in the Big 12. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's, true of both situations for us nothing, nothing wrong with being confident kevin reynolds i appreciate you keep doing good work at the salt lake tribune thanks man i appreciate it byu coming to Autzen stadium on saturday big opportunity for dan lanning and the ducks will they get it done dan lanning by the way on tomorrow's radio show leave it here you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the bft radio network we take a dive on oregon who are they what are they about next Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Number 12 BYU coming to Hudson Stadium on Saturday against the 25th ranked Oregon Ducks. 12.30 p.m. kickoff on Fox. Brock Heward among those on the broadcast. Oregon uh, will face... A ranked opponent for the second time this season. And, and and Anna's popped into the studio. I want to kick this around a little bit. BYU's a tough matchup. It is. BYU comes to play. BYU, I think, is pretty good. Oregon, I don't know. I don't know if Oregon is this Oregon. Early in the second quarter, terrible interception. Picked off and run back by Christopher Smith. Todd, you talked about it, Bo Nix. The highs are very high, but he makes a lot of critical mistakes and he's thrown two picks already. Are we going to get the Oregon that lost 49-3 against Georgia? Or are we going to get the Oregon that put up a 70-burger on Eastern Washington? And this is going to be a walk-in for Cardwell. Byron Cardwell with a touchdown. Great efficiency from Bo Nix. He saw it early. His tight ends out on the perimeter. Found his back. Perfect location on that front number. Uh, if uh, it, are we going to get Dan Lanning after the after the game on Saturday against BYU talking like he was after the loss to Georgia? Uh, I don't I don't know about surprised. You know, I, if you go back and you look at the game, you know, it, it wasn't forty yard, fifty yard explosive plays down the field. You know, they really did a great job of what we kind of said post game on the perimeter. They were able to make successful completions for Stetson, and he operated that system really, really well. He knew where he was going with the ball. Um, but a lot of those completions were early, and then they won on the edge, and we didn't. Um, you know, I think yards after contact were a huge piece, which means we got to do a better job of tackling. we got to do a better job fundamentally, um, and that's really where a lot of it starts. Um, I think there are some, some ways that we can help our players by what we call. Uh, they can they can help that, but I know for me personally, I'm self-reflecting on all the things that I can do better, and I think every player on our team, every coach is doing the exact same. But gave up 49 to uh, Georgia, who looked a lot like the best team in the country. And then 
they blasted Eastern Washington. I'll say this. It's never been a lack of effort from our players. They've always been committed to doing it right. That doesn't mean we've always done it right, and that's for our coaches as well. Um, but the standard is the standard. We're not going to accept less than the standard regardless of who our opponent is. So that's why I've said so much. You know, really this week was about playing us, right, and playing our, the best version of us. I think our guys really bought into that uh, at the beginning of the week. And even though Wednesday wasn't the sharpest practice for us, I think they saw, hey, hard work pays off, right? And when you can combine, you know, uh, really deliberate practice with some talent and skill set, you're going to have uh, great success. All right, so what? My my simple answer is BYU is probably somewhere in the middle, talent-wise, between Georgia and Eastern Washington. Probably closer to Georgia on the scale than Eastern Washington. But where is Oregon? That's the question. We don't know. We don't know how good Oregon is. We don't know if Dan Lanning can coach. We don't know what, what the season's going to be like for Oregon. So I I have all like when the schedule came out, I looked at week three, this Saturday's game, BYU coming to Hudson Stadium. And I went, that's the week where we find out where Oregon is, what they can be. Is this season going to go somewhere fun and interesting and dynamic? Or is this just going to be a transitional season? You look at the, the offensive and defensive staff. You look at the players on the roster. You see the turnover of the coaches over the years, but from, frankly, from Willie Taggart to Mario Cristobal, now to Dan Lanning. And we go, okay, this is where the growing pains set in. But who are they? We find out Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why there would be some nervous Duck fans uh, about this game. Because, I mean, don't you think this is kind of a, a must-win game for the Ducks to define themselves for this season? I, I think I'm just echoing yeah, you a little bit. But I don't know if it's must-win because like, if they lose the game, it's not like you know they have to fold up and they don't get to play the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. But if they lose the game, I do think it tells us they are probably not a contender in the Pac-12. And, look, you can get to the college football playoff with one loss. You can get to Las Vegas by, you know, probably having two losses in conference play. Like, you, you know, you're not, a, you're not a playoff team, but you could still get to Vegas and play maybe Utah or USC for the conference championship if you are, uh, you know, a team that is sitting there with, you know, two losses in conference play. But I feel like if they lose this BYU game, it's going to tell us that like the upside for Oregon might be like a holiday bowl. Like it's like they're not going somewhere grand or an Alamo bowl or, you know, maybe even a trip back to Vegas for the Vegas bowl, but not the PAC 12 championship game. So it's kind of where I'm looking at them and going, okay, if they lose this game, I don't think we can assume that they're going to beat Washington. I don't think we can assume they're going to beat Washington state. I don't think we can assume that, they're going to hang in there against Oregon State. I think it raises a whole bunch of questions for Dan Lanning. Well, and again, we go back to the question of if <laughs> – I mean, it's kind of sad that we're talking about if they lose. It's a matter of how they lose, right? So it's a matter of whether they are competitive against BYU, whether they're in the game, or whether it's a blowout and the way in which they would lose. I also am interested to kind of see where BYU is. Like, you know, they had a very emotional game, as our guest in the last segment pointed out, against Baylor a week ago. Is it possible that BYU is looking at Oregon, as I said, and going, hey, you know what, Um, we just had our big emotional moment. Is it possible that BYU comes out flat in a game where they normally don't come out flat? Steve and Sean, you have a take on BYU-Oregon. 
I think it's going to be a great game. I think it's uh, two pretty even teams. I think there's some advantages built in for Oregon, and I think that's why they're favored. You know, the spread when it came out that Oregon was three-and-a-half-point favorites after BYU just beat Baylor, a top-ten team. I was surprised, but I do think that Oregon's a really, really good home team. They have the second-longest home-winning streak in all of uh, Power 5 behind Clemson. They haven't lost since 2018 at Austin Stadium. And I think, obviously, you know, you look at Week 2, BYU coming off of that emotional game against Baylor, you know, went to overtime versus Oregon. They had a nice, relaxing week last week. So those uh, those factors favor Oregon, but I agree. The implications, you know, it's similar to uh, the, the past couple of games for Oregon State. Like, it's just, it's must-win games against, you know, non-Power 5 schools right now. So, uh, yeah, you have to win this one. And even if Oregon does win this one, the, the start of the Pac-12 schedule is a little tricky, too, with Washington State and Stanford. So, uh, definitely a, a crucial couple of weeks for Oregon here. During the summer, we talked about what is Dan Lanning as a coach, and there was no way to tell. And this was always the game that we pointed at to say, okay, this is where we finally figured out, is Dan Lanning a good coach or not? Or is it a, you know the start of something good? And I think it's still unknown, right? We I didn't expect Oregon to win against Georgia. I expected them to get blown out. They did. I expected Oregon to blow out Eastern Washington. They did. So nothing has surprised me so far this season with the Ducks. It is all about this game right now. And I agree with Sean. Like, this is a very close game. Three and a half point spread. I think Oregon is the more talented team. I think Oregon, since they're at home, should get the victory. Um, I know I'll be picking Oregon in this game for sure, and I'm not even a Duck fan. But this seems like a spot where, like you're, you're right, John, if the Ducks are good, if the Ducks are going to compete for that Pac-12 title, this is the type of game that you have to win over BYU. How much of a factor, Sean, given that you, know, you went to Oregon? Um, I, I, I don't think the students are fully back on campus yet. How much of a factor is that in terms of the atmosphere at Autzen? Oh, I, I think the students will find a way to be there. Uh, it, it's a huge factor. You know, these, the, the Eastern Washington game was not indicative of what Autzen's going to be this season. However, you know, it's September 14th right now. School, you know, I'm not involved anymore, but school probably starts in about 10 days. Uh, you know, I, I think students will start filing in. I think this will be the game that students are uh, are kind of starting to get back on campus. I'm sure there's a lot of students that are making plans to uh, come to school a little bit early to be at this game. I, I'm not worried about the crowd here, even if it's not sold out. I, I expect Dotson to be absolutely rocking. I uh, texted with a friend this morning. He's got a daughter who goes to Oregon. He says he dropped her today, like they went down today. Mm-hmm. And she's a sophomore, but they took her down today. So I think there will be some students there. I also just think that this is the kind of game, like it – that we learn about Dan Lanning, and he is 36 years old. He is the youngest coach in the Pac-12. He is the youngest coach in Power 5 conference football. And Kalani Sataki on the other side, you know, I know Kalani a little bit because he was at Oregon State as the D coordinator, and his D coordinator now at BYU was the linebacker coach at Oregon State. So I know these guys. These guys played in the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament. (laughs) And I've texted a little bit with Kalani, and – I find myself looking back at the text string, and it's congratulating him on great game, great defensive effort, good win against a Pac-12 team, nice job. Like, he has had good success there. He's established himself. He's got himself uh, a second contract at BYU. And I look at their numbers. You know, their two games this year, both opponents were held under 175 passing yards. They've only allowed one passing touchdown this season. They have held both uh, opponents this season to 21 points or less, and four of the last six opponents have not got to 21 points. It feels to me, guys, tell me if you agree, 
the test this week is Oregon's offense against BYU's defense. Yeah, I don't know that BYU necessarily has an explosive offense, and both their top receivers were out last week. Uh, we'll find out if they're going to play this week. But I don't think BYU's offense, you know, it's not the Zach Wilson offense that we saw a couple years ago with the Cougars. They're more of a you know strong-nosed defensive ball club. So you're right. Is it going to be Bo Nix not making mistakes, making the smart play, or is it going to be the Bo Nix of Georgia? I think that is the question, and that's the question I've had all season long with the Ducks and Bo Nix. I think this is the type of game where the Ducks can get out there and get some get some points on the board. Am I wrong to be a little bit more optimistic after they just put 70 on Eastern Washington, or is that completely completely no, out of the picture? I don't think you're wrong, but look, there were some throws in that game. Anybody who saw that game knows. There were some throws Bo Nix made that he probably doesn't get away with against BYU. Mm-hmm. Could be a pick six. Like There were a couple throws where you know if it were Georgia, it was six the other way, and, and he, he got away with them. And maybe that's maybe Bo Nix knew that, and that's why he makes the throw, and maybe he sees it on film, and he goes, okay, against a better team, better athlete out of there in the corner, I can't make that throw. But it, it left me thinking Oregon's not going to be perfect here in Pac-12 play, and I don't think anybody thought they were going to be. I think the next two games, they ha- you know, they're hosting BYU, and then they go to Washington State. That's a really tough stretch uh, for Dan Lanning and his program. If they can get through that 2-0 and somehow, they get Stanford at home. They go to Arizona. I think they can be sitting there with four or five in a row there at, at that point. So you got to get this one, though, first. And beating BYU at Autzen Stadium, I think Autzen Stadium's the the big uh, advantage. Well, and I'm a little nervous because I, you know, when you look at Dan Lanning's comments leading into this game, he's not going into this game with an abundance of confidence just in the statements that he's making. He's making reference to how this is the kind of game that an Autzen crowd can make a big impact uh, you know, in the game. He's talking about the physicality and the violence uh, of BYU. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. And maybe that's just his personality. Like, we're coming off of, you know, Mr. Testosterone himself, Mario Cristobal, right? And maybe that's just a different persona in Dan Lanning. Um, but I don't know. It, 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 it makes me nervous for the Ducks. Look, I, it's an opportunity. And I think if you're Dan Lanning, you, you go, this is a great opportunity. But I'm a little skittish for Oregon. I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure. I make my pick tomorrow on this game. I'm not sure where I'm going on this one. Like, I heard Steven say he's picking Oregon, and I went, okay, yeah, but I'm not sure yet. Sean, you picking Oregon? Yeah, just because of the home field. Like, Oregon is really, really good at Autzen Stadium. And, again, I like some things that I saw last week. Like, I I, it, I wasn't completely flipped from the Georgia game, but I was definitely a lot more optimistic after we watching uh, them play against Eastern Washington and dominate the way that they did. I think it's going to be really close. I, I like that BYU's receivers, uh, like three of them, are, are injured right now. So even if they do play, it might be kind of a decoy thing. And I like Oregon at home. I will say the thing that worries me is what you're talking about is the physicality. Uh, you know, Georgia went out and physically just pushed Oregon around. They did not react well. How is Oregon going to react? Because BYU is that team. They're the type of team that wants to push you around and be physical. I want to think that Oregon being at home, being in the comfort at Austin Stadium, is going to you know bounce back and react well to being hit in the face right at the start of the game. But you know, you never know. I think they will. But that's the real question for me. And, and the other thing is, like, are you buying the narrative that Georgia's that good? If Georgia's that good, then you kind of throw away that first week and you go, look, Oregon's not 
on playoff level, but where are they? And that's what we find out against BYU because Eastern Washington is on the way other end of the spectrum, and you know Oregon just made it look as easy as Georgia made it look in week one. Leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know if you guys follow me on Twitter, at John Canzano BFT, but about 25 minutes ago, I tweeted a video that uh, came from SportsCenter that shows the railing at FedEx Field collapsing last football season. Uh, four fans are now suing the Washington Commanders for $75,000 each. Um, take a look at the video. Anna, take a look at the video. Can you do a play-by-play, like, news anchor style? Like, you know, tell the people at home what you're seeing there is Jalen Hurts is uh, Eagles uh, is walking by the railing, and the Eagles fans are leaning over, and the railing at FedEx Field in Washington, D.C. collapses. Uh, yeah, it looks like a handful of fans, about four or five fans, are leaning over, trying to high-five him, maybe get some autographs, take some video. The railing, obviously, is not properly secured, so about four or five fans fall roughly um, two to three feet from the landing that they are standing on because the railing fails. Jalen Hurts, in his sort of athletic prowess way, sees what's about to happen, anticipates it, steps back, and is not injured in the process. Good athlete right there. Good Good athlete. Good feet, Jalen. Good reflexes. Uh, There is a photographer um, that is injured. I think he actually sustains, really, I think, the most injury. Because the railing came down on his leg. The railing comes down on his leg now initially the fans who fall don't appear to have sustained major injury because they come to their feet and actually get the opportunity to not only hug uh their player that they were trying to (laughs) engage with but he actually hugs them back and is checking on them and picking up one of the younger fans to make sure that they're okay so at least initially at the scene it didn't appear to be you know severe injuries but you know how that goes in a court of law all right so i want sean steven anna and myself to play a little game here i want you to look at the video and i want you to pick your favorite kind of reaction pick one individual that is in the video okay it doesn't even have to be somebody who fell down pick one individual whose reaction or whose actions in this video do you notice the most because i have a favorite that i immediately went to and if you want to play this game at home at john Canzano bft on twitter Anna, who's your favorite? My favorite is the blonde woman with the beanie cap on who has the phone in her hand Yeah, because she's taking video of Jalen Hurts as he's walking off the field. Right. And she considers for a moment continuing to roll on the whole scene, but her her reasoning gets the better of her where she goes, okay, it's – probably better for me to just tuck the phone away and deal with the situation. Yeah, she She's was gonna my keep, favorite. She was going to keep filming. Yeah, because I know that. I know that <laughs> feeling in that moment. There's a decision to be made because you're like, huh, there's a moment here. Could I, should I keep feeling or should, filming or should I just put the phone away and be reasonable? And, and she did the reasonable right. thing. My guy 
Who's is your guy? near <laughs> camera as you look at the video. Uh-huh. He actually has a Keyshawn Johnson Eagles jersey on, I think it is. And okay. he's got a, he has a football helmet on. Yeah. He's the young, he's a young individual. <laughs> and he is out of frame for a bit. Yeah. But he comes in, you almost think he's a player. Yeah. Because he's got an Eagles helmet on. He was prepared. <laughs> of all the people in the video, this cat was ready. You know? I don't think he actually fell. I I think oh, he, he just kind of walked onto the scene. No, I think he fell. It, it was, was an yeah. opportunist. He, no, he fell. He was behind he everybody. It was like he almost yeah. jumped over on Yeah, the he side. fell. Oh. I can see him. He okay. falls. Yeah. Right. But he's got a helmet on. I'm not If that guy's suing, that's frivolous. He's not hurt. Now, Steve, the, the, Steven, other, the other girl, Anna talked about the one girl with her phone. The other girl climbs back into the crowd like she's going to get in trouble. And that, yes. one, that I did like, like. She was afraid, and like yeah. people were helping her pull her back up like she's getting in trouble for getting down there. So that was my favorite. She's um, also, yeah, yeah. she's ma- masked up, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. I also like the guy, uh, the kid in the hat who went for the hug first initially. Like, he uh, fell, yes. looked up, saw Jalen Hurts, and you could tell he was excited. Yeah. And so he reached his hand out to get help and then just went in for the hug. Uh, See, that's a silver lining kind of kid. Like, yeah. hey, I fell, but I'm going to make the best of this situation. Yeah. I just face-planted from about eight <laughs> feet above the playing surface. And, but holy tall? hell, Jalen Hurts is right there. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's not you, eight feet. Who you got, Sean? It's like three feet. No, first. it's more than three feet. I, I hate having last pick. Steven just stole mine. It's the kid in the uh, the green and black snapback. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, he, like, he takes it as an opportunity. He doesn't even react to the fall. He's just like, holy crap, I'm right next to Jalen Hurts. Let me... And then he goes and, you know, he gives him a little side hug. Like, he, it was definitely a silver lining, half-glass full opportunity for that kid. How many people hugged Jalen Hurts that fell? One, Lots. two, three, Lots four, five. Okay, I have another yeah. favorite, though. Okay. It's the guy, the big guy with the beanie cap on that actually has a Jalen Hurts jersey on. Yeah. He recovers. And then he kind of does like a reach over shoulder tap yeah. hug thing with the phone in his hand. Like yeah. he's he does put the phone down, but he's like he's no, you know he's no worse for wear. He's getting that. a selfie at now, that do point. Do we feel bad for what looks like maybe like a teenage kid who like looked like he rolled his ankle, put his coat over his face, and looked like he was crying? Do we feel bad? Oh wait a minute, I didn't see that one. Here it, I am laughing. Yeah. All right, where his, is he in his the frame? Flip-flop falls off. He's wearing like a gray shirt. He's on okay. the bottom Who's of the screen. Who's wearing a flip flop to an Eagles game? Oh, that guy. Yeah, see, like this is the big guy in the hurt jersey. He falls yeah. on his foot. Oh, he's hurt. Yeah, he's hurt, and then the security guard rolls over. Yeah, to him. that guy's hurt, and they're just dragging him out of the way. Because... Yes, yeah, just like football. Just get him off the field. I, I find it interesting. Like the uh, the writer in me finds it interesting that Jalen Hurts is there when people fall over the railing. Like Hurts. Yeah, out of all you know? players, like, it's not like the long snapper. No, and and you know, and then two guys with Hertz jerseys are also on the ground yeah, with him. I know. Um, and then the other guy that gets me, not to like marvel or uh, wallow in their misery. No one um, died. Um, yeah, but that one dude that he that Jalen Hurts helps up, I actually think he hit his head on the ground. Yeah. He fell pretty hard. Yeah. But he very quickly recovered and put his arm around Jalen Hurts and posed for a photo. Well, because that, <laughs> so. that's the magic of celebrity. You know how it is? Like, when you come across somebody like that in a situation like that, your adrenaline is so yeah. high because you're so excited to meet this player that you're fawning over that you probably wouldn't be as focused on your injuries, hence the lawsuit and claims for $75,000 months later. And how about the photographer? Who is he trying to kick? Do you see the kick 
that he does about five or six seconds into the video frame. I think he's just trying to straighten his knee. I don't think he's actually kicking I think anybody. he took a kick at somebody. Like, he thought really? it was somebody's fault. Like, he was mad that the fans came down on top of him, and he wanted... So, you know, he's going to kick someone back. Yeah, I agree. That that's This yeah. is like a Harry Styles t- uh, topic again. Uh, uh-huh. Did he? Did he, Yeah, but uh, it looks like a kick. No, I think he was just trying to straighten is his Is it leg. a kick or is he straightening his legs, Stephen? Mm. Watch the photographer. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, uh, that's a someone. kick. It's a kick, definitely. I'm surprised that not many, not more people like rushed the field to get a picture because the whole point was to get a high five for Jalen Hurts, and that's what all these people <laughs> did. Yeah. So it's like, why did not more people jump out of the crowd? This this whole thing is so Washington Commanders. Like, what other franchise? Seriously, <laughs> the team that was named Washington Football Team, the team that's owned by Dan Snyder. Like, what other franchise would this happen? By the to? way, that is definitely a kick. He, yeah. That is a full blown kick. Yeah, he's trying to kick. And and why? And they go home and then they go, hey, I got now I'm hurt. Come on. Well, that's how it always happens. Come on. It's emotional. Yeah. Emotional uh, distress. Oh, the railing collapsed. Eh, okay. Well, that's the world we live in. You would make fun of me on the internet. You and. You know, overweight Jalen Hurts guy. We're leaning against the railing, and you know, football helmet kid. Football helmet kid was came to play, man. He he like and notice the little kind of dab he gives Jalen Hurts, like he's in the like he's in the team or something. You know, like it's pretty funny. Oh, he dabs him up. Yeah. Well, but if you read the actual complaint, they're saying that no one with the commanders came to check on them. Mm. They're also obviously faulting the railing, but they're also sort of blaming the systemic failure, you know, of the people in charge to check on them and see if they needed medical attention. The teams in the NFL right now are putting on the back of the tickets. If the railing collapses, (laughs) we are not liable, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Pac-12 embroiled with ESPN and others negotiating their media rights deal. Uh, in the 5 o'clock hour, I'll play a clip to, uh, that is really interesting that I saw earlier today and I think a bunch of other Pac-12 fans have seen where Andrew Marchand, who is at the New York Post, along with a sports business journal writer who covers media, did a little podcast in which they talked about the Pac-12 and ESPN, and they talked about the new deal coming down the pipeline. I'm going to have some stuff on this next week, but it's really an interesting clip, and they sort of point to the idea that ESPN and the Pac-12 are not on the same page right now when it comes to that negotiation. Now, some of it may be that the Pac-12 is looking for leverage. Some of it may be that this is a negotiation. It also may be that the Pac-12 is looking into some digital streamers like Amazon and Apple and others. I want to, in this segment, just talk a little bit about that. Let's throw out, let's for a minute throw out the money. I know it's hard to do in sports because it's all about money. But throw out the money for a minute, guys, and Anna. If the Pac-12 is cutting a deal with a media entity, is it impressive or not if the Pac-12 says, guess what, we're going way outside the box, we're going to Apple, we're going to Amazon, we're doing it different than the Big Ten and everybody else? Would that be seen in the world of sports as splashy and forward-thinking or because if ESPN or somebody else, a major network is not involved, would would people look down on it? The brand of it. Um, I, I actually think uh, 
it, it would be splashy and innovative and cool, but what really matters is the money. Yeah. Because I think given the landscape of what we've seen in the last, you know, year and a half or so, it's the money that matters. So it's the distribution and it's what will the Pac-12 universities get. Uh, it, it can be as splashy and innovative and cool and out-of-the-box thinking as you want, but if it's not paying, then it doesn't really matter. It falls short. Okay, we're going to talk about this on the other side of the break. It'll be part of the 5 at 5 because I'm going to play that clip. It's really interesting, and I hope you stick around for it. We'll also talk about a sports movie that has now been scrapped amid some uh, interesting allegations. It's involving Matthew McConaughey. We'll talk about it next. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Jonathan Smith coming up 5.30. He'll be with us in the happy hour. Oregon State football coach will be along. We'll talk about the Pac-12. What's the latest on their media rights negotiations? Where is this conference? LeBron speaking out, plus whatever Anna comes up with. It's all part of the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Well, the Robert Sarver investigation made news in the last 24 to 36 hours, but a day later, LeBron James addressed the issue on social media. Owner of the Phoenix Suns was suspended for a year and fined $10 million by the NBA after an investigation revealed that Sarver used the N-word at least five times. Also, he promoted a toxic work environment, made misogynist comments. LeBron James addressed the issue and said that there's no place in the league for this. He thinks the league got it wrong. Our, our league, quote-unquote, definitely got it wrong. I don't need to explain why, said LeBron James. Y'all read the stories and decide for yourself. I said it before. I'm going to say it again. There's no place in the league for this kind of behavior. I love this league. I deeply respect our leadership, but this isn't right. There's no place in the NBA for sexism, misogyny, racism. Doesn't matter if you own the team or you're an usher. LeBron James speaking out against Robert Sarver. Adam Silver in a uh, news conference looked unprepared to me. I was surprised that Silver who had a whole bunch of time to prepare for this news conference, looked like a guy who was backpedaling. Anna, number two, go. Really weird news uh, from the Hollywood Porter and now Deadline.com. This film called Dallas Sting that was set to star Matthew McConaughey has been scrapped just six weeks before they were starting production in New Orleans. He was going to play, this is based on a real story about a group of high school girls from Dallas, Texas, who went to China in 1984 and beat some of the best women's soccer teams from China, Australia, and Italy. And the movie is getting, is scrapped now because of some allegations. It's really murky, disturbing allegations about what really happened are being, you know, cited as the reason for why this movie is, uh, is getting cut. The story goes that the Dallas Sting, they had this wonderful soccer club that went off to play international games and contests and really paved the way for the U.S. women's national team to become the U.S. women's national team. That the Dallas Sting went 
overseas, played in China, beat Italy, won the international championship, and became the first American male or female team to do so. The Matthew McConaughey, was he going to be the coach? He was going to play the coach yeah. who like charged $85,000 on his credit cards for non-refundable tickets to make sure that the team could get to China where most people expected it would lose badly. McConaughey has also dropped out of the project. You're not canceling the project. I'm out. Uh, apparently, some of the facts may not have been facts. It may have been romanticized a little bit. Number three in our five at five. Let's go to Serena Williams. As long as Tom Brady's playing the hokey pokey, I'm retiring. No, I'm not. I'm retiring. No, I'm not. Serena Williams taking a page from this. Last month, she said she was evolving away from competitive tennis. 23-time Grand Slampion champion said, you never know today on Good Morning America. They asked her whether she could be persuaded to return to tennis. She said, I've just been saying that I think Tom Brady started a really cool trend. So the ability for an athlete to say, I'm out, well, wait a minute, I changed my mind, appears to be a fashionable thing. Serena Williams, is she done or not? Who knows? Tom Brady, 45, he retired in February, then six weeks later said, nah, Serena's 41. She might be doing the same thing. Anna, number four. Do you remember that video clip we talked about last year? It was a girls' basketball game, and a mom was telling her daughter to go after her opponent yes. during a youth basketball game. This was last year, and it turns out Tira Hunt, who was heard on video telling her daughter, whose father, by the way, is ex-NBA player Corey Benjamin. Yeah. Uh, this happened in California. So that mom has been ordered to pay more than $9,000 in restitution Good. to the teen victim after she agreed to enter a diversion program. She yelled, get her, or whatever, Yeah. and instigated the whole thing. That's bad parenting. She's had her parenting license taken away, too. She was uh, hit with two misdemeanor counts, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Pretty much. And battery. <laughs> She was facing up to a year in jail. Didn't have to go to jail. She didn't go to jail, but she should pay the money, and her parenting license gets taken away. Finally. Am I on number five? I think so. Okay. Num the number five. <laughs> Pac-12 conference is embroiled, embattled, engaged in a negotiation with ESPN and others for their media rights. Andrew Marchand of the New York Post covers media. He did a podcast with a sports business journal reporter who is also fantastic at his job. And they were talking about the Pac-12. We can fade down the music a little bit, Stephen, because I want people to hear this clip of Marchand talking about what he thinks is going on with ESPN and the Pac-12. But listen to it all the way through because I want to kick this around a little bit. I think the Pac-12 and ESPN, hundreds of millions of dollars apart. They are not even close. So that is going to be interesting uh, where that goes goes uh, in terms of negotiations and will teams jump because when you're that far apart that means something has to happen and I'm not saying it's going to happen I don't have information on this but something just maybe a little conjecture do one of the digital players get involved with uh, the Pac-12 right Apple for example loves to buy everything and then sell subscriptions and they did that with the MLS 
the Pac-12 just had this problem of not being, you know, with the Pac-12 network and you couldn't find it. And it's, you know, obviously not as successful as the ones that partnered with uh, Fox or ESPN. But money talks. And if Apple can make the case that we're going to pay you, we're going to bundle uh, the Pac-12 and they can get the money that they're looking for, uh, maybe that maybe they come into the picture. But right now, the issue for the Pac-12 and perhaps the Big 12 as well is just leverage. Right. The, they've already spent a lot of money. So I think their way that doesn't make that doesn't mean a deal won't happen, but they're going to somehow have to strengthen their hand. If you're um, both, especially the Pac-12, I think the Big 12 has already expanded a little bit. Uh, and I think they could try to pick off some Pac-12 teams. So that is something to watch uh, for our college football fans out there. Yeah, I would be absolutely uh, I, I want to upgrade shocked gobsmacked. Is that more than shocked? I, it, it, I would be gobsmacked if ESPN doesn't uh, find out uh, a way to do a deal with, with, with the Pac-12. All right, there's the podcast. That's a clip of it. I think that's the important stuff. Uh, it really dovetails with what we were talking about in the last segment. I, I think the Pac-12, and here's what I'm being told by insiders in the industry. They're telling me that if, the, if there's going to be a deal with ESPN and the Pac-12, and it's going to be just a straightforward deal, we should have some news between now and about October 17th, October 24th, before Halloween. Uh, that was kind of presented to me as, look, if there's going to get a, if there's going to be a deal with ESPN and the Pac-12 and it's going to be a traditional deal, we're going to get news here probably in the next 30 days. If it takes longer, it means they're going outside the box. They're going creative, they're doing something new. They're doing something that's unusual with distribution and that it could be groundbreaking. Now, I asked Anna and I asked Sean and Steven, like, and let's let's dive deeper on this. If ESPN isn't the primary partner, if they do something with Amazon or Apple, and we go, hey, this is this is new, this is interesting, how will that be received by the rest of college football? To answer that question, I really want to see Thursday Night Football tomorrow because we were yet to really see uh, Amazon be like a, a major, major player in sports. Correct me if I'm wrong there. But uh, it feels like Amazon's taking a big step this year. They got Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit. And I, I just want to watch Chiefs Chargers tomorrow and see how accessible it is for every NFL consumer. And I feel like, you know, the more we watch Thursday Night Football and kind of see how the NFL does it, the more we'll get engaged to see how well it'll be in college football. I think it has the chance to be really forward-thinking and, and really cool. I, you know, I, I could see it being a great option for the Pac-12. Yeah, I'm with Sean a little bit here. I think it's either going to be really good or really bad. Like, I think just with the way the world works and America works, like, we're afraid to change, afraid to do these type of things. And I do think when it goes to streaming, the hard part for the Pac-12 is to have it to grow your fan base or grow the people that want to view it. Because the people that don't have the streaming options or don't want to do it, they're not going to seek it out to be like, oh, I need to do this because of the Pac-12. I already don't care about it. But... If it's there and you have it, you know, it, it could work out really well because it can reach everybody. So I think it's a boomer bust. Um, it's going to be very interesting, like Sean said. It'll be how does it work tomorrow with Thursday Night Football? It could be great. I think that, again, the money has to be there. Um, initially, I was concerned in talking about all of this that, you know, a certain segment of the population 
in the country will be left behind because you have traditional football watchers. They're just used to having their cable box or, you know, their satellite TV and they watch ESPN and that's how they get their football or, you know, some of the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox. But when you look at the future of television viewing in America, if you look at the importance of capturing the customers of tomorrow, which every major corporation understands that you're not really appealing to the customers of today. You've got to, you know, you've got to sell to the next generation. And when you look at, look at the statistics that anywhere between 75 to 85 percent of U.S. households now have a video subscription service of some kind, whether it's Apple Music, YouTube or Apple TV, uh, Netflix or whatever, you know, America seems to have caught up with the technology. Um, so it could be seen as brilliant as long as the money is right. I have some positives and negatives if it comes to this. The Pac-12 doesn't have any leverage right now. That's part of the problem. Fox went in with the Big Ten. CBS and NBC kind of followed in there. It's ESPN, and then ESPN knows it has the Pac-12 and it has the Big 12. And it can kind of use the idea that, hey, there's not a lot of other bidders here in the market to maybe maybe that explains the hundreds of millions of dollars that Marchand's talking about in that clip. Amazon creates leverage. A Apple creates leverage. And I, and I think Sean hit it. Like, let's see what happens on Thursday night. If Amazon pulls this off on Thursday night and it is a home run and everybody's talking Thursday, Friday, Saturday, this was amazing, this was great, why don't they do this more often? Uh, all of a sudden, I think the Pac-12 is in business because I think then they have leverage with ESPN because Amazon, let's be real here, Amazon's got money. Amazon is printing yeah. money. So they have they, hundreds of millions of dollars is nothing to Amazon. So I think you're talking about creating leverage here, and I think it's possible that Amazon and Apple create that this week. But, the, but here's the downside to it. Uh, you know, I didn't mind when they said, hey, they're hundreds of millions of dollars apart because – that can be fixed a number of ways. It can be fixed with, hey, we'll add more teams. We'll get San Diego back into the fold. Hey, we will, uh, we will, uh, you know, do something else. We'll give you all the Pac-12 network content, part of the inventory. Like you can make up hundreds of millions of dollars in a negotiation. But the problem, the thing you can't make up is the propaganda. ESPN right now is a partner with the SEC. We see it 24/7, 365. ESPN perpetuating the idea that the SEC is wonderful, the SEC is great, the SEC walks on water, fine bomb show, tune in. Uh, the ESPN controls that narrative in college football. And if you don't have them as a partner, I think you lose them banging the drum for you. Yeah, that's in the short term, though, it, for, for now. So, you know, maybe the Pac-12 has an opportunity here with Klyovkov and his background with experience at Hulu, like basically launching Hulu, that, you know, they could become the disruptor. Like, how much more of a West Coast thing would that be to become the disruptor and how people actually uh, watch college football? There, there is an opportunity there. Um, my concern was sort of the hurdle because you don't ever want the technology to be a hurdle for people to actually, you know, access your product or service. But when you consider that 82% of U.S. households have an Amazon Prime membership, is it that much of a leap for us to think that, you know, they could download the Prime video app and figure out a way to get the college football on their TV at home? That's the, that's the thing, Anna, you hitting on it is 
they'll be the first to do it, right? So if it works, they're going to reap the most benefits. And the biggest risk is that it's just never been done. So can they do it? I think it can be done, but it's just scary because no one's ever done it before. But I think, you know, here's the here's the thing. Like, they're facing a problem that the MLS had. MLS was faced with the idea, like, do you take the money, Apple, in their case, or do you take the ESPN platform? And they chose Apple, and MLS made that mega deal with Apple. I kind of feel like the Pac-12 right now, they have an option here. Do they settle into third and fourth place in the ecosystem? Right, the status quo. Yeah, or do they go, you know what, we're going to push the envelope. And here's the dirty little secret, guys. Marchand in this podcast, he's at the New York Post. Okay, His co-host works at Sports Business Journal. Who do you think's feeding them that information? How do they know? It's not the Pac-12. It's ESPN. ESPN's telling these people we're hundreds of millions of dollars apart. That has to be their source. Mm -hmm. So it tells me that ESPN is trying to publicly negotiate right now. Mm -hmm. It tells me I think the Pac-12's pivoting in a outside-the-box way here. I think we possibly could get some news next week beyond that where – I, I just see some things that are starting to fall together that are that are happening mm-hmm. behind the scenes. And I kind of think, like, we might see the Pac-12 go for it with Amazon or Apple. And if they go for it, I mean, isn't that – haven't we all kind of wondered, like, why is it with all of us on streaming services, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Apple TV, like, we were supposed to cut the cord and save a bunch of money from cable bills, but with the number of subscription services we have, I don't know if that's really working out. But it's kind of become part of our daily life and how we view entertainment. JohnConzano.com. So, and <laughs> – Jeez, shameless plug. And so isn't isn't it high time that college football or sports in general catches on to this? And why not have the Pac-12 be part of the first wave? Because this is where viewing habits are going. So somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to be at the forefront of that. Here's the deal that I think like that it's forming in my mind right now. They do a primary deal with Amazon or Apple sure and they go look you're gonna have our core games all of the Pac-12 network content whatnot then as a secondary element the Pac-12 goes to ESPN who's partners with the ACC and says look you want those lucrative crossover games that we've talked about from the beginning of this negotiation you want to be able to give Clemson and Florida State Miami some more money We'll play those games with you. We'll drop from nine conference games to eight. That's what's been sort of bantered about. And we will play a crossover game with you guys, uh, like Oregon playing Georgia in the non-conference this year. And we're going to hold those games at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, and we're going to hold those games at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. And the teams that play in them will get 4 to $5 million, like Oregon got, to play Georgia. And ESPN can carry the games. And I think that is a... Out, as outside the box as you can possibly get. And I, I kind of feel that's where the Pac-12 is going to land. Interesting. Did you go see those games in Vegas? Steven would bet on them. <laughs> yeah. Can I bet at the stadium? That'd be great. Yeah, you probably can. Can we can we do, uh, like, if we're making matches here, I got Clemson playing Utah in Vegas. You, you know, that's going to be a win. For, you know, I'm not talking about the teams. I'm talking about for monetarily, that's a win for ESPN. They'll pay for that game like they paid for Georgia, Oregon. And how about Miami against Oregon at SoFi Stadium in L.A.? 
All of a sudden, Oregon's recruiting the Southern California footprint. The Pac-12 goes, hey, we're in L.A. We're selling inventory in L.A.'s TV market. We are planting a flag here. Uh, UCLA, USC are gone, but we're still holding football games. Now, would the uh, ACC get mad about that, always having to travel out to the West Coast or out to the West over here, or would they want return games back on their side? I think you can make return games, and you find venues like you know Atlanta and other places, NFL stadiums, and you hold these games. And look, I'm not saying Wake Forest, Oregon State is going to be a huge draw, but I think if you take you know the, the idea that, hey, we're dropping down to, from nine conference games to eight, everybody's going to play a crossover game, Let's match up our teams based on the prior year's record, conference champion against conference champion, two against two, three against three, you go right down the line. I think he got something there that ESPN would buy. But I, I'm just, you know, my spider senses went off when I saw this because Marshand and his co-host on that podcast, they do a great job covering media. But they are plugged in with ESPN and the traditional media partners. So the fact that this is leaking it's telling me maybe ESPN's trying to do some public negotiating because they feel the Pac-12 pulling away and going in a different direction. Very, very interesting. Some scheduling on the football front unraveling. And I, I'm just thinking about, like, the potential market share that, you know, Amazon Prime or YouTube gets you to because it, it, it literally gets you to the next generation of viewers. Gets and you the money, too. It gets you the money. It may not be the money right away up front, but it would be innovative and, but, and, and you, different. You lose ESPN as a you know propaganda Primary. machine because yeah. ESPN is going to be pissed, and that network's going to look down upon. They're going to say, oh, the Pac-12, look at the deal they did. They can't get anywhere. But the truth is ESPN wants all that inventory, wants that content, and I, I kind of suspect the Pac-12 may be moving in a different direction based on that little clip that we just played. Jonathan Smith's coming up bottom of the hour. I want you to leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Jonathan Smith is coming up in just a couple minutes. And so I'm going to do something unusual here because I want a full conversation with Jonathan Smith. Uh, I want you, as a listener of this show, to tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. Give me a question for Jonathan Smith. I'm offering this only to radio listeners or podcast listeners or streamers. Tweet at me now, at John Canzano BFT. Give me a question. I will use one question that a listener gives me via Twitter in my interview with Oregon State's coach coming up in the next segment. I'm not going to tweet about this. I'm just going to look for people tweeting at me. So just tweet at me. If you follow me already, you got a huge advantage. At John Canzano BFT. Give me a question for Jonathan Smith. I'll use the best question in the interview in the next segment. He's coming up again in just a couple minutes. And uh, we'll uh, ask him about the game coming up this weekend. I'm going to ask him to take us through kind of the thinking that he went through during the final minutes of that Fresno State win last week. We'll get the latest and greatest from Jonathan Smith coming up. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Tweet at me if you want me to use your question at John Canzano BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You guys are wild. You listeners are wild. I asked you to tweet me questions, drop it into my DMs with 
ridiculous questions. Come on now. Jonathan Smith is with us, Oregon State's football coach. Hey, nice job last week. Yeah, you, you know, you take them how they, however they come, and anytime you find a way to win a game, you feel good about it, so I appreciate it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but your mother reads me online, okay? And she she posted, I wrote the game column, and I wrote, you know, how, you know, Jonathan Smith's got stones, and all these people were like, you know, he's got, he's got balls, you know, and there's a comment from your mom who says, I don't know how I feel about everybody talking about my son's anatomy. <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked to her this week, so I might have to. Might have to ask her about that one. But, don't um, don't tell her to stay off there. I like that. You know, she's not. I got Dan Lanning's dad who's posting. Your your mom's reading. This is a, this is good. I don't want you to punish her for for uh, having a voice in this. But you, that was okay. A, that was guts, man. What, give it. Take us through that. All right. So you get down in there. Situation. You've gone through this a whole bunch of times. But what goes through your head? Yeah. Well, a ton. Um, and just quickly recapping, I mean, again, there's pass interference, and I needed we needed clarification. Was it in the end zone or was it before? Because that, that made a difference where the ball was at. And I, I thought they were really late on letting us know that in the end zone, the ball's going to be on the two-yard line. So we're sitting there. I'm waiting on the white hat to actually announce it to the crowd. He does. You can't even hear it because the crowd's going. So anyhow, it's really late on recognizing that it's going to be on the two. So we spent a little time and called timeout as the clock play clock goes down and then you know digest what the coach is what do you like what do you know and guys were kind of back and forth it's like okay forget it we're gonna kick it so we send the guys out there to kick it and then as jt coach tedford walks down to call timeout i'm just sitting there marinating on it and thinking about the whole, the best outcome here is a tie game and you know there's no it's not 100 percent that we're gonna make from the four hash yep. and so anyway he calls timeout and more more time to think about it. I was like, no, let's go. Let's go do this thing with our own line tight ends, Jack Coletto. Send him out there again to run the play. They call timeout again, and then Coletto comes over and says, "Hey, coach, I'd rather run this one." And then we've got a couple plays, short yardage, goal line plays for Coletto, and and Coletto wants a different play. So it's like, you know what, you want that? Okay, we're going to do that. And then we send him out there, and and obviously he scores. He was on yesterday's show, and he talked about that moment. And I said, I felt like you guys were going in the A-gap like you did earlier in the game. He said, you know, it's funny you say that. We talked about it, and we changed the play, and they liked the look. Obviously, you guys liked the look you got. You trust your players. That comes out in that. Like, there's, I think there's some coaches that wouldn't have taken that input that would have said, hey, I know what I'm trying to get here. What goes into yeah. you trusting your guys? Well, it starts up front with the O-line, be able to create some movement, the tight ends, uh, obviously Jack Coletto. Uh, I know the work they've put into this thing. I know the type of players they are and the capability they have to make it physical and get us two yards. And, and, and again, I go back to if the game's on the line and you're on a hostile place and you got two yards to get, if you feel good and trust these guys up front and Coletto, well, let them go do it. And, and obviously it came through for us. Jeff Tedford, I believe, on the sideline, because the camera cut to him. I'm up in the press box. I can actually see your assistants through the glass. They all kind of stopped what they were doing, and I thought, oh, they're going for it. Like this, They weren't in like field goal kicking position as assistant coaches in the box. They were like on the edge of their seats. And, and I think Tedford smiled on the sideline. I, I, did he say anything to you afterwards about it? 
you know, those things, those exchanges are so quick after the game. You know, it was quick, great game. Obviously, I got a bunch of respect for him, that program, a bunch of those coaches, their players. They played great. I just thought it was a great college football game. Um, and so if he is smiling, I didn't see that. But if he is, I think he's got an appreciation for how that game was back and forth, how competitive it was. And, you know, obviously we, we went for the win and got it. Jonathan Smith with us, Oregon State football coach. Uh, your guys have been talking about being one and zero every week. Uh, you're, you're, but you're sitting at two and zero. You haven't been in this position. You did something that you hadn't frequently done. You won on the road. You've talked about that. There's something about this team. It's very mature. The maturity in the locker room. How does that help you on game day? Yeah, I do think we got some maturity. Some of that's the experience these guys have been through. Uh, some ups and downs, um, and it needs to to continue to go. I think it helped us in that game. You know, we were down two scores uh, late in the third quarter, kept on battling, understanding the game's long. And, we, you know, there's three touchdowns scored in the last two minutes of that game. And so I think some of our maturity, even on the last drive, knowing that the thing's not over, we can continue to execute. And you go back to trusting players. We've got a lot of guys. I really like this team and really trust that these guys are putting in work and mean something to them. Um, not that anything's easy, not that anything's guaranteed to us, but I do like this group that can play for four quarters. Larry, who is a listener of the show, tweeted at me, and he says, ask Jonathan Smith if there's anything that has surprised him on the field this season. Is there something – has, has your team done something or a player done something that surprised you? <laughs> well, of course, my coaching bias comes into it. Yes, yeah, surprises like we can't function some of the times. I think about it offensively <laughs> Some of these drop balls and false starts and mis-ID'd here and there. we we got to clean that up. Um, I don't know about surprise because I do feel like i got some confidence in these guys. I've been pleasantly um, not surprised but just optimistic on some of our new players. Silas Bolden making a bunch of plays for us. Reverse goes for a touchdown. Had a huge third-down catch on the first drive of the game. Uh, you know, defensively, James Rawls has made a huge step in his game from what he played a little bit last year but he is a different player and a really good one right now. And so that, that's been nice to see some of these on, newcomers come along with these veterans to take a step in their game. Have you heard the radio call of Mike Parker losing his marbles? Like, you know, have you heard that call? Of, you know, I haven't. <laughs> I, I haven't. I, I imagine it was pretty exciting at the end there. Yeah, Stephen, can we cue that up for Coach? I, I think it would be – awesome to like get his reaction to it because i think it's one of those moments where you know mike parker's been around this program since before you were a player and you uh you know are in this moment but there's like fans got to hear it you know steven you got it all right he's working on it but it 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 was the kind of thing where I just felt like, you know, the emotion of that moment, you got to live it on the sideline, and I kind of want you to hear what people got to hear as it was part of the game because th that scene on the sideline with Coletto, like here's the other thing. Coletto talked about this yesterday. He scores, hands the ball to the official, and then it's Bedlam. What was it like for you in yeah. that that moment? Yeah, our whole group, our whole sideline goes and, uh, and celebrates together. And I actually showed that uh, clip on the end of the game film of the you know, more or less the entire sideline celebrating together and just reminding them that this is the ultimate team game and this team, how unified they are, like all three phases having to contribute to a win and celebrating that, that was definitely a, a special moment. 
Jonathan Smith with us, Oregon State football coach. I'm going to play that clip for you here in a second. I'm pulling it up now. But let me ask you, you know, Montana State, we talked to their coach on the show earlier today. They're going to want to run the ball. They're going to want to play field position. Uh, it's really interesting clash of offensive style because I think you guys have some of the same objectives. When you watch Montana State on film, what do you see? Yeah, I think they do a really good job. they got some players, and they're well coached. I mean, schematically, there's not a lot of holes into it. They challenge you on offense and being disciplined with your eyes, the way they run the ball with the quarterback, hand it to the back, hand it to fly sweep. Um, they do. They do a good job of being creative, and, and it's tough to defend. I just, I just think this whole unit has great pride because they know how to win. They've won 14 of their last 17 games. You know what you're doing if you're playing for a national championship last year. A lot of those players are back. And so we're going to have to play well. This isn't one of these games where we can just cruise into this thing. they got our complete attention and understanding. There's a good chance this thing's going to go for four quarters. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to be fun to see a game played at Providence Park as well, sold out. Here's the call, though. Here's the call from Saturday night. in uh, At the end of regulation, last play of the game, let it rip. Coletto awaiting the shotgun snap. The Beavers try to win it. Coletto runs to the right. Coletto in! Touchdown, Beavers! And the Beavers defeat Fresno State! Jack Coletto, that hammer scores. The Beavers win it for the first time ever in this stadium. The Beavers win it. There it is. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. You appreciate Mike Parker. I mean, this guy's been around a long time. He's totally invested uh, in all the sports. I, you know, obviously football yeah. and he's doing all the games. Basketball, he does a great job in baseball. Um, you do appreciate kind of his loyalty. He's a fan of the thing, and it means something to him when we have success. So uh, that's awesome to hear. Jack Coletto is interesting because you use him all over the place in, in a variety of ways. It, is that a normal thing for a coaching staff to identify that and use a guy like that? Or there's part of me that wants to think when you arrived – you know, I'm not. I don't want to disrespect the players who were there, but when you arrived, the talent level wasn't where it needed to be, and you maybe got a chance to see some guys in different roles. And you know, am I reaching too much, or is there some logic there? Well, I think there's some uniqueness to Jack for sure. I do think that you know, early on, it, it takes a little time, but you learn about your players and what they're capable of doing. And over time, now with Jack. And, you know, doing the quarterback thing, making the switch to defense. Uh, he's very capable of understanding both sides. He wants to be on special teams. He has physical tools to do it. I do think it's unique to have a player that you're asking. I think he played almost 30 snaps of defense, started on every special team. And then obviously doing the – it's not just the wildcat quarterback thing. The guy's playing fullback, leading up, and some of the runs, Fenwick goes for 100 yards. A lot of that is creases that Coletto create. So I think it's unique to his skill set and then for him to be able to fit in on both, both sides of the ball uh, the way we're using him. How did you celebrate the game? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny, yes, because we go back to the locker room, and, yeah, you know, we sing the fight song, and there's celebration, and you're loving up guys, and, and that's all good. And then you go back to where, where the coaches hang out. Well, and I, I regret doing this, but the first thing out of my mouth, and I'm talking to D.C., talking <laughs> about why we're we playing so much man coverage, and they're gashing us here and there, and I'm talking to the O.C. about dropping the ball, and then this and that, I'm not – I wasn't celebrating that long. It's funny because your coaches, I ran into your coaches like 30 seconds 
after you guys scored. They were up in the box, right? I'm in the hallway. They're in the hallway. Lindgren looked like he was ready to fight somebody. He was in that that kind of uh, he was in, you know his adrenaline was going like you know I just think he was yeah. amped you know he very serious look on his face he wasn't like jumping around or smiling he just was kind of no nonsense going down the hallway like you know we got the win let's get out of here kind of mentality and I just think that's really interesting to to see you guys having fun how different is this now than maybe two years ago when it you know you weren't getting this kind of result. Right. There's no question. I think our expectations are a lot higher. And, and I think it's a failure on the coaches' end, uh, and, and this across the country. But coaches, so so often, you can win a game and you're right back to what you could have done better, which is you know somewhat good to have that mentality. But at some point, can you not enjoy the win for 30 minutes after the thing? Uh, and look, I, you know, Lincoln did a good job, shoot huge two two drives at the end of the game to help us win the thing. And his quarterback played really well. Um, even Trent Braham giving them the defensive end, playing too much man coverage. That guy did a great job in the red zone. And so all of us as coaches, you know, it, we got to enjoy these wins because this business is too tough not to. Amen to that. I think you got to celebrate the wins. Uh, your family had to be really happy. Your kids had to be happy when you saw them. But now you turn focus to this game coming up uh, here in Portland. Chance to be 3-0, and chance to go to conference play undefeated. Uh, you know, if we look ahead, you got USC at home. Maybe it would be huge to be three and zero in that setting. Uh, what do you need to do against Montana State to come away with a win? Yeah, I think we got to score. I mean, I look at it because they offensively control the clock and run the ball. This clock's going to move. If we can be efficient scoring on offense early on and try to try, but you know, to score early enough to where they feel like they want to get out of their run game and. And feel the need to throw it a little bit. We got to tackle well because again, I go back to this discipline. The eyes, quarterback's going to run it, fly sweet, get the ball. We got to tackle well and have our eyes right. If we get those things going, um, we're going to have a good chance. All right, uh, coach. I congrats on the win. Uh, you are two and zero heading to uh, week three of the season. I think you're in good shape and uh, probably feeling pretty good about things. Uh, Health wise, uh, I know Luke Musgraves not expected to play this weekend, but. Is it a serious thing, or is it, hey, let's just get him right for conference play thing? No, and Luke won't play. Uh, and there's potential for it being more than just one week. Uh, we'll see how it continues to recover, but uh, for sure not this week, and it potentially could be a little bit longer. Trey Lowe, for sure, that won't, won't be this back this week. We're hopeful by the uh, middle of the year or whatnot. And, and it's college football. I think everybody – every program across the country. He's got a guy or two down. Uh, we need the next guy to step up. Jonathan Smith, thank you for uh, coming on the show and appreciate you taking the questions. Don't yeah, you know, Make sure your that. mom, don't tell your mom not to comment. Like I, I thought it was a really funny comment. So you leave her alone. Let her do. Okay? We'll do. I got it. Yep. All right. We'll do. <laughs> All right. Jonathan thank Smith. You. There he is. Oregon State football coach. It's true. Uh, you know, Dan Lanning's dad commenting in the comment section at johnconzano.com and Jonathan Smith's mother commenting in the comment section at johnconzano.com. Dan Lenning's dad supporting his son and Jonathan Smith's mom, as everybody was going, he's got stones. He's, you know, like, you know, what a, what a big decision. And all of her comment was, was a, it was a great win. I'm not sure how I feel about people commenting about my son's anatomy. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. You've got the home of the truth. 
Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up top of the hour, what do we have, Stephen? We got Peter Sampson. We got, we, got? Uh, we got Talk Timbers today. Timbers. Talk Timbers coming up top of the hour. Hot I don't even know. They're in the playoffs. It's good. I think they need to give uh, the uh, Portland State football team use of their stadium. Bruce Barnum was outspoken about that on yesterday's show. I wrote about it today. I'm not even sure where I am in the show. Do I have one segment left or two? I don't know. This is the final segment. This is it. Okay, so I'm in good shape. Yeah, great shape. All right, there you go. See, <laughs> this, is, this is how aware I am. Uh, it's interesting. I had one of the affiliates reach out to me, and they said, hey, when you come back from commercial break, we need you to wait like one second before you start in because apparently I'm starting in too soon. I'm like, I'm excited to talk, man. Can't hold me back. Got to let it let me run. Um, Jonathan Smith says Luke Musgrave's injury may keep him out for more than one week. Is he playing? Is it gamesmanship for USC? Is yeah. that what he's doing there? Yeah, gamesmanship, I think, for sure. I, 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 if Luke Musgrave plays, I think Oregon State has a chance to stay with USC because, I again, we've talked about this defense at USC. Yes, they've caused a lot of turnovers, but can they do it for a whole game if you're going to be pounding the rock on them? I think there's a chance you can score on them. Oregon State needs uh, Luke Musgrave. I think it's definitely gamesmanship on that one. I, I think he is because it was the way he slipped it in at the end there. It's like he wanted someone to know about it. Like Musgraves out this week, uh, Trey Lowe, uh, who did not make the trip to Fresno, did not play in that game, also out. Uh, they're going to need those guys if they're going to compete against a team like USC. Yeah, he didn't have to say it. You're right. Like he didn't have to mention that. You know, it could be more than a week. All he had to say was, "Yeah, they're injured." You know, we're going to see what reevaluate them later on this week. Because these coaches, I got to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not saying Oregon State or Oregon or any of the Pac- all of them in the Pac-12. They all have people who scour the internet scour Twitter, looking for news reports, trying to find out who's healthy and who's not. I had last year in uh, Oregon State had played USC, and Drake London had a big game against, uh, at least a big initial game against uh, Oregon State, but Oregon State won the game. But I had another Pac-12 coach who wanted you know, to, me to tell him what, Drake London looked like on the sideline at the game like how hurt was he or was he injured or you know and I was like man you guys are like way into this like and I noticed when Fresno State was lining up to warm up they had two coaches whose job it was to stand at midfield with a roster and they were literally going down the roster checking who was in uniform and who was not in uniform so way inside the college football game where the rest of us are getting a hot dog or settling into our seat the coaches are going, okay, is 12 playing? Is 14 playing? Is, you see 15? Do you They're think go- that they should – it should be more like the NFL where they have to disclose it because there is so much money now on the line with gambling and everything like that? Or do you like kind of the secrecy of the gamesmanship that it has in college football? I don't know. Like, because in the NFL, like – okay, so the NFL finds the teams if they don't give accurate injury reports or whatnot. But the way that Jonathan Smith put that, like, should he have to list – that Musgrave is out for this week's game. Next week, will he have to go questionable? Like, how far do you have to go with that uh, if you're Jonathan Smith? And I do think you're right. Like, the game has changed because there's so much gambling out there. Like, why aren't there rules for college coaches? But who's going to regulate that? Yeah, that's the tough part is, well, what are they really going to do, right? You can't really suspend them, you know, find them. I'm, I'm with you. I, I kind of I like the uh, you know the questions that you get right before game time. 
Well, that's what that's the story of Brent Musburger, right? You know that's why he said you're looking live. It was for all the gamblers so they knew what the weather was like. Ah, there you go. Brett Musburger, you're looking live. Brett, Mu- Brett Musburger, he's a uh, – we've had him on the show. He is he is a guy who's into that gambling world too. He li- I think he lives in Vegas. Yeah, he uh, he kind of basically started like the VSIN gambling network. But, yeah, that was the story is the, the gamblers told him to make sure to tell him what the weather was like. And so he would always say you were looking live so the gamblers knew, okay, it's sunny out or it's rainy out. And then they could try to get one last bet in because you know, it would be like a little pregame warm-up that's like five minutes before kickoff, you get another bet in. Do you think that uh, social media, because we do have in-game wagering now, do you think that social media plays a role in the odds on in-game wagering or how on the ball are the uh, various apps and casinos? I think they're really on. Um, I, you know, I look at the gambling odds, and I don't take them to heart every single time, but I do think it's a good barometer of just how you can check on how your team is doing. Like It's a good you know, 1,000 mi- thousand miles up in the air view of, what your team is perceived as. Tomorrow's program, Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, will be with us. Also tomorrow, David Carter's going to join us. He's a professor at USC. We're going to talk on tomorrow's show about the landscape of NIL, uh, the media rights negotiations, whatnot. Jaden Grant will be with us, Oregon State's uh, uh, team captain. And then we got a comedian on tomorrow's show. Nick Cody, the former University of Oregon offensive lineman. Get this, guys. He has been dabbling with stand-up comedy. And he is performing a comedy show in Eugene this weekend around the run-up to the BYU-Oregon game. Former offensive lineman, played for Chip Kelly, has been on the show. Uh, I feel like I have some inside intel on this because he started taking a comedy class and he sent me some of his early on stage videos and now he is doing his first show coming up in Eugene this weekend. What do you guys think of that? I can't imagine anything more frightening than <laughs> going on stage and doing that. <laughs> He's coming on tomorrow's show. We'll talk about that with Nick Cody on tomorrow's show and we'll give the details for people who want to actually see him. He'll be in Eugene at one of the restaurants or bars that is get doing an open mic and he's going to do a comedy routine. And I, I don't know. I give him some feedback. I said, you know, you got you to gotta go to your strength. You, you know, he was doing some of his early routines. And he wasn't addressing the idea that he's this big, giant human being up on the stage. Like, you know, he was trying to do, like, normal comedy. And I was like, man, the elephant in the room is you. Like, you know, you're the biggest guy in the room. Tell the story. You Talk about your own experiences. Yeah. You know, because he's giant. <laughs> the Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. Grab a podcast of this show. Share it liberally with your friends. Don't be greedy. And we're back tomorrow with another great program. Again, Dan Lanning, Jaden Grant, and Nick Cody on tomorrow's show.